The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk. with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. I, of course, am your host, Mitch LaFawn. And joining me this week from Mike and the Mechanics and Genesis, it is the one, the only, Mike Rutherford. And on the other side, uh, you know, people have been talking to me about this Gene Simmons interview from 1980. A couple of episodes ago, I played you my little sort of seven-minute clip of me at 11 years old asking Gene some questions. Folks tweeted me and wrote me through the Facebook page and said, hey, we want to hear the whole thing with your mom included. So, okay, I am going to play you the whole thing with my mom included. So you'll get about a 22-minute or so uh, clip of Gene and my mom, and then I'll just replay the part with me. Why not? Let's, do, let's just do the whole sort of unedited tape. And uh, then, just uh, since we're in a kiss mood, you know, let us talk kiss. I am going to give you Adam Mitchell. He is a songwriter known for his work with Bonnie Tyler, Chicago, John Waite, Paul Anka, Anne Murray, and a whole bunch of other people. But he has also been a songwriter for Kiss. He wrote on the uh, Creatures of the Night album, Crazy Nights album, and um, yeah, just a whole bunch of stuff. So we, we're going to talk to uh, Hot in the Shade, I should mention also. So we're going to talk to Adam about his new album. Uh, of original music that he's done under the Adam Mitchell name, of course. But then we're going to go back and say, hey, what was it like writing with Bruce Kulick? What was it like writing with Paul Stanley? Um, so he's going to walk us through that process of writing on the Creatures of the Night album, Crazy Nights, and some of the other artists uh, that he has worked with. So so that'll be um, a lot of fun. But uh, before we get to that, um, I do want to mention a few things. Uh, new albums. I'm always in pursuit of new albums, new music, new everything. And there are two of them that are currently available that uh, you absolutely are going to have to check out. First is this new band out of Atlanta called The Biters. Uh, they've put out a bunch of EPs and singles, and they, they had an album before, but they've got a new album called The Future Ain't What It Used To Be. Uh, and i got to tell you, if you like classic rock and roll done right, the biters are for you. It is absolutely stunning. You will not be able to put this album down. And then you'll have to go back and, and listen to their previous album and stuff like that. But biters, B-I-T-E-R-S. Absolutely wonderful. Great, great stuff. Um, and of course, I have been on a white snake kick for, for quite a while. And of course, you know, I love the band Thunder out of England. I've, I've mentioned them often. Well, there is a collaboration between uh, some of the ex-members and stuff, uh, a band called Snake Charmer. And they are on their second album called Second Skin. And you've got uh, Adam Wakeman, who plays keyboards with Ozzy and Black Sabbath, Neil Murray, who, of course, uh, was in Whitesnake, Harry James, the uh, drummer uh, in Thunder, and you've got Laurie Weisfield of Wishbone Ash. And they have put together this album, Second Skin. 
And again, it is just a wonderful, wonderful album. And now you're not going to get to hear about them necessarily in mainstream media, but I think you should. So the band is called Snake Charmer, and the album is Second Skin. If you like sort of that old school, you know, pre-1987 White Snake, uh, this band's for you. You are just absolutely going to love that. And then, uh, last but not least, Defying Gravity by Mr. Big. Now, the album's release has been pushed back, uh, I believe, to July 21st. And I sat down with drummer Pat Torby, and uh, Torpy, I should say, and I have that for you coming up on um, June 26th, actually. That'll be released. I have that for you on June 26th, and I was sent the album in advance, uh, Defying Gravity. And at times over the you know at times over the years I have felt that Mr. Big got a little too muso-ish for me you know just so much into the the playing rather than the song uh, and that that's just my perception I mean I, trust me that could be absolutely wrong so I, you know but but my perception was that sometimes the musicianship sort of outweighed the song and I've always felt that you have to play for the song but Defying Gravity is absolutely wonderful so when that comes out in July, you are definitely going to have to mark that on your calendar and make the effort to download, buy it, do whatever. It is. It has great melodies. The playing is just absolutely stunning. I mean, stunning. You cannot get better than the playing on Defying Gravity. It is just a wonderful, wonderful album. Anyway. Why has it, you know, why, why keep rambling? Let, let's get on to Mike Rutherford of uh, Genesis fame and, of course, uh, Mike and the Mechanics. Their new album is called Let Me Fly. It is a fun, fun, I would call it sort of melodic rock, softer rock, um, you know, but it's very well put together. And it is June of 2017. And the last time the band Genesis got together on the Turn It On Again, the tour, uh, it was in June of 2007. So 10 years ago was the last time that Phil Collin and Collins, Tony Banks, and Mike got together. So we do talk about is there a reunion tour coming and so on and so forth. And of course, June 1986 saw the release of Invisible Touch. And Invisible Touch to me at that time, back in the 80s, was just absolutely one of my favorite, favorite albums. It, you know, it came out, like I said, in June. And at the time I was in school, and of course June was when you go into vacation. And so I just had this cassette tape, and eventually CD, that just got me through the entire summer. And I think when you say to folks that Invisible Touch by Genesis is your favorite Genesis album, they sort of look at you cockeyed and go, really? W what? But music and, and, and being favorite is not just about, um, and you like the way I say about in that very Canadian way, um, it's not just about the songs and the craftsmanship and all that. It's also about the context and the moment and the time in your, of your life. And so June 1986, uh, you know, I had finished high school. I went into 
uh, CGEP, which is a thing in, in the province of Quebec, which is sort of right after high school, just before university. I guess it's sort of college, if you want. And so I, I was completing that first year, and this album came out, and, and so there was, there was this moment of, I'm free of high school, the weather is gorgeous, I got nothing to do except listen to music, and it was just before the hair metal stuff really got, and I don't know, people hate the hair metal thing, but whatever, just before that hair metal craze really got deep. I mean, you know, 87, 88 is when... The, so it was just in that moment of we're not you know, down the rabbit hole of Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and all that stuff yet. And we're, we're past listening to Huey Lewis and, and, and some of the other stuff that I was listening to in the early 80s. And so for me, it just represents such a moment in time and such a, a, an experience. And so I just love that album. And, you know, say what you want about if, if it's the best or not the best. But you look at a song like tonight 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 and i don't like long songs i mean anything past three minutes i usually lose attention but this one's almost nine minutes and i love it i love everything about it uh you think of land of confusion and the video that went with it it, it, was, it was stunning i mean you know back then a video like land of confusion was cutting edge technology and it, it's a fun song you know and, of course, throwing it all away, sort of the, I don't want to say the sappy ballad, but the, the sort of slower song. Anyway, I'll, just to put it, to, just to, to, to sum it all up, this is just one of those albums. Anyway, I asked Mike Rutherford about that. So let's just get on to this here. Uh, we've got Mike Rutherford up first. Head over to break. When we come back, I will play you the entire 22-minute 19, June 9th, 1980 interview with Gene Simmons. Uh, my mom asks the questions first, keeping in mind, and I don't mean to brag, but I wrote those questions for her because she had no clue who Kiss was, really. And then um, we'll just replay the seven minutes just because, you know, it's seven minutes. If it had it been, you know, 70 minutes, I probably would have sp spared you the, the aggravation. But anyway, uh, and then we will finish it in a sort of Kiss tribute kind of way with Adam Mitchell, songwriter Adam Mitchell, talking about his new album and all the time he spent in the 80s writing with Kiss. And I got to tell you, there are some details in there and some stories in there that as far as I know, and I've been a Kiss fan for 40-some years, that I had never heard before, or certainly not told in this way. So you are going, if you like the Kiss minutia, isn't that a great word, minutia? I love that word. Um, if you love Kiss minutia, and you want to hear it from somebody outside of the KISS world, just to give you a little different perspective, Adam Mitchell has got some great 1980s KISS song songwriting stories for you. So stick around for all that. So here we go. Without further ado, I give you guitarist, sometimes bassist, of Genesis, leader of Mike and the Mechanics, the one, the only, Mike Rutherford. We are speaking with Mike Rutherford of Mike and the Mechanics. The new album is Let Me Fly. Uh, Mike, this for me is a great pleasure. I, I spent my youth, of course, listening to Genesis. So, so this is a, a great thrill. Oh, thank you. Very kind of you. Yes. Um, let me talk about uh, Let Me Fly. Um, first album in five years. Like I said, you're, you're Mike Rutherford of Genesis. You could, of course, just 
you know, gather up some friends and head out on the road and do Mike Rutherford Presents an Evening of uh, Genesis and, and do very well. What compels you to, to put forth new music and, and go out with Mike and the Mechanics? I think primarily, you know, I'm a songwriter. That's really what inspires me and gets me going. You know, and I've, I've never done touring without new music, really. Um, you know, Genesis had a wonderful career and, and still great friends, but um, I wouldn't want to play Genesis songs, you know. I'll do a couple in the set, which is fine, but, uh, you know, and I have a, a real pleasure in sort of getting a band together, a team of guys, developing it, making something happen. It's an exciting process. It really is. Now, you've got uh, Tim Howard uh, on vocals, along with Andrew Roach, uh, Roachford, uh, Tim being Canadian from Alberta. Um, talk to me about always having sort of this two-vocalist approach to every album. Not Why not just one guy? Safety in numbers. Um, no, not entirely. Basically... The first Mechanics album, mid-80s, um, there was no real plan. I did a bunch of songs, recorded with Montserrat, came out to the UK and thought, God, who's going to sing it? So on the first Mechanics album, there were actually five singers. But we ended up with keeping the two voices, Paul Carrick and Paul Young. And we had a sort of thing whereby we suddenly realized we had a rock voice and a Paul Carrick-style R&B voice. And the two voices together give you a real scope for writing songs and, and singing live. It really does. It's... It, it's it's actually very great. Um, you, of course, back in the day on Acting Very Strange, had uh, sung yourself. Uh, why not lend your voice to Mike and the Mechanics? Because when you write, hopefully, a good song, you want the best voice you can find to sing it. Right. And that kind of rules me out, really. You've always uh, worked in sort of in this collaborative process with Mike and the Mechanics. Why had you not continued sort of the Mike Rutherford solo career? So you had Small Day, uh, Small Creeps Day, and Acting Very Strange. Why not sort of the, make a third Mike Rutherford solo album? I think I craved a great singer. You know, simple as that. As I said, you write a good song, you want a great voice. Right. And I couldn't carry it off. And I think it's important that you realize your limitations, you know. Um, and I've worked with some, I mean, I've worked with Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. So the bar's been set rather high, and so... Well, I found singers who have leveled before the two pools and now Tim and Andrew Richford. Um, that's where I want to be, really. It, it, it's a great place to be. Now, there hasn't been uh, a lot of North American dates. You, you were in Ashbury Park in New York recently. What are the plans in terms of a uh, tour for North America? I'm coming over that, I think, actually, end of February, early March next year. Okay. Um, you know, the States is great for us. It's a little, little tougher for us because, you know, we had a slight, Mechanics had a gap. The first couple of albums, three albums, did really well in America, in North America. And then we kind of kind of lost our way a bit, really, in terms of America, North America, and we started doing Europe as our main sort of country. Um, and so there's a sort of lack of uh, knowledge of some of the songs over the last sort of uh, 15 years, which is okay. So it's a little harder, but what happened in the UK was we started touring six years ago, and it was like being sort of 19 again. You've got to go out there and prove you're a good live band. And we sort of did it, um, playing sort of smaller theatres, and now we're playing the Albert Hall and stuff. So it's sort of, it's worked, it's paid off. So I'm hoping the same thing might work in America when we come back in, in the spring. Is there a difficulty in, in reaching the North American market? You know, I look at some bands like Status Quo and Thunder and stuff like that who do very, very well in the UK, and yet over here it doesn't seem to translate. Um, what do you think is sort of the, the difficulty in, in breaking through in our market? I think, well... Obviously, recently, it is, but since the kind of the rap thing came in, there's this, America sort of was, was overpowered by the UK artists for a long time. 
then they kind of redressed it. But the status quo is a prime example, actually. They're like the English version in the sense of um, the kind of southern bands, you know, Lina Skinner, they're sort of, they're a bit like that, but not, but then they, they, they can't find a space in America, you know, like Robert Williams never really worked in America. Um, England bands had a long, a long time not being much relevance in America. It's nice to see recently with Adele and um, Ed Sheeran doing well again. It really is. Um, let me ask you about uh, diabetes. You've been a, a you know, a spokesperson, or you, you've spoken out about diabetes. Your son, uh, Harry, was diagnosed with type 1 when he was 11. Um, talk to me about, uh, you know, educating sort of the masses about the, the disease and what it's meant uh, in your life. Obviously, it's been something that, that, that has been uh, in the forefront. Yeah, I mean, my wife and I are now ambassadors for Diabetes UK. We're very involved in the charity. Um, it's an important time. I think probably in America, too. I mean, type 1 is 10% of diabetes. Type 2 um, due to obesity and overweight has gone crazy in the UK. I mean, the numbers is ridiculous. The increase. Um, many older people. So there's treating that. And there's, a, there's an awareness of, of, of uh, you know, type 2, you can you can adjust your lifestyle and reduce the problems. Um, and type 1, too, you know, having seen some athletes, you know, uh, Steve Bregway, the most English, the most um, meddled Olympian, uh, rare up, you know, diabetic type 1. It's impressing on teenage kids that actually uh, type 1 is a condition, and if you manage it well, and the medicine's getting better all the time now, with the, with the way they um, uh, handle it and control it, uh, there's a lot you can do. Yeah, and, and, and of course it's something that hits home too, as my dad, who's uh, currently 88, also has, well, he has type 2, but it's, it's yeah. Yeah, it, it really is something to look forward to. Not forward to, but it's something to look out for, I should say. Yeah, I mean, your father, you know, an older age getting it is a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Because you get older, your body is a little bit weaker and stuff, and you can't, it's hard to fight it, but uh, type one is a tougher one. Yeah, it really is. Um, 1996, uh, Phil Collins, of course, leaves Genesis, and you go on with Ray Wilson and eventually record Calling All Stations. Uh it has been said since that maybe you shouldn't have gone on, or maybe you shouldn't have made that album. Looking back now, uh, are you proud of that album? Do you like that album? Was it a mistake? It, was it just part of the evolution? Um, yeah, I mean, probably so. I mean, I can't... Um, a mistake? Well, not really, because I chose to do it. So it's my, you know, it's my fault. Really. I sort of... Um, just having gone through the Peter Gabriel era, changing singers, we might have made it work, but we, 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 we came out of the album at a time when suddenly our standing, especially in America, had sort of waned a bit. It didn't feel right, you know. Um, I think nowadays, sort of the older sort of heritage acts are viewed much differently in, in a more sympathetic way, all around the world, which is great. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had some nice songs. Ray, Ray did a good job. I think Ray and Tony wanted to carry on, but I just sort of felt anyway to carry on to do an album or a tour every year for the next five years and build it up again. I just didn't have it, have it in me, really. And, and that sort of brings me back to sort of the Mike and the Mechanics thing. It, I mean, you do have it in you, but you just didn't have it in you for, for Genesis. Did, did you think at some point that it was lessening the, uh, the band's pedigree or, or its heritage, or are you just better off going off and doing sort of Mike and, and it just being more... No, I just think, I think, like I said, you know, I think the, 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 the route forward, the way forward with us and, and Tony Banks, Ray Wilson, was, was to do what I said, was to just work hard, hard, hard for five years and try and find a new... Or George's always a genesis, but I just, you know, 
I've done too much. I didn't have the energy, enthusiasm for it. And so as we went, I stopped. We didn't. We stopped it. Probably my my um, my choice, really. And um, and uh, we hadn't we hadn't that. We wouldn't come back with it in in '07. So things work out in a funny way, don't they? It really does, actually. Um, six of the best, 1982, uh, over at Milton Keys. Uh, Peter Gabriel comes back for this one show. Uh, talk to me about that one event and sort of the events surrounding it, because there seems to be this, uh, I don't know if you want to call it myth or, or uh, you know, wives' tales, but it seems that Peter was in a lot of financial difficulty, and yet you, you got together, you made this show. Uh, there's no recordings of it. Uh, how was how that event for you? How do you remember it? Well, it was, no, it was, it was, it was black and very simple. I mean, Peter had a problem with his first year or second year of WOMAD, lost a lot of money. And financially, I think people to pay it back would have been um, just too severe. So we sort of stood up and said, we'll do a show with you and, and, and raise some money to pay back the debtors of WOMAD. That's a simple. Um, we decided, probably a mistake, I'll admit it, actually not, not to record it. Because we thought, on the night, the atmosphere, we were under rehearse, you know, thought, on the night, the atmosphere... And what we were going to be doing was just worth doing it. But we weren't sure how good it was going to be. So we thought if we filmed it and recorded it in posterity, it mightn't have been that good. On reflection, actually, which we had, because in a way now anything can be, anything that's historical of value is worth having. Yeah, it really does. And of course, if you go to YouTube and you, you look at all the different sort of bootlegs that have been uploaded, there's a lot of views yeah, on no, this. It's a shame it's a unique moment. I mean, we should have recorded it. Shouldn't have worried about quality, just recorded it and could have kept it, you know, whatever. Yeah, you really should have. Um, Invisible Touch, the album, was for me a bit of a departure in the sound, certainly more slick, more commercial, but just an absolutely fantastic album. What do you remember about going into the studio and what the sort of the, 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 the plan was for this? What, were you sort of chasing radio singles? Was it just an evolution of the sound? Um, yeah, you can't. You, I mean, you can't chase singles. You know, we never really did actually. Because we got better at doing it. Um, that album, I remember, the writing of it just flew out of the box. You know what I mean? We just couldn't stop. Right. Ideas came out so freely. We kind of raced along with the writing um, and the recording. It just seemed to sort of have its own momentum. Like life seemed to go wrong. You know what I mean? There were no songs that were struggling. Um, right. We wrote fast. You know, once again, I think you know because we've been doing our solo stuff. When we reappeared together, the three of us in a room to the day one, it was exciting, you know, and a bit edgy. We had no ideas. We didn't bring any, any music. We just went, here we go, one, two, three, and I played a chord, and, you know, off we went, you know, for a little drum loop. So it was an exciting sort of experimental way to write and uh, inspiring, really. It really was, and, and Throwing It All Away is, is certainly one of my, my favorite songs. Um, Paul Young. The uh, singer of Mike and the Mechanics passed away, uh, I guess, about 17 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been way it's been a long time. It goes it goes way too fast. Uh, what did he bring to Mike and the Mechanics? And, and talk to me about him also as a person, but also as a singer. Well, one of the great rock singers, really. You know, I mean, he had a sort of rock voice and a, and a most wonderful gentle voice too, which you've heard on some songs. Um, a lovely guy. I mean, he had his demons. You know, he lived the rock and roll lifestyle on the road and at home. So it wasn't a huge shock when he passed too early. But um, him and I were like miles apart. People got on so well. And on, he had a natural instinct of what, what was the right thing to sing. You know what I mean? He had a melody. He just adapted a bit. But on stage, he was really an incredible presence. Paul Carrick on stage was great, but, you know, a great voice. He was just, just sort of sang, really. 
and Young had the most engaged in the audience. You know, he's one of those guys. If you ever see Elton John with Ray Cooper, like a piano and percussionist, or some of those things he did, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Ray's You know, everyone would sort of watch Youngie. Poor Young was playing tambourine and doing backup vocals. He was mesmerizing. He had a stage business that was awesome. Great vocalist, and and those early albums are are are, are just wonderful. Um. 2017. It marks the 50th anniversary since uh, Genesis began. You know, the, the band, the band, sort of, and I don't want to say sound you know disrespectful, but it sort of faded away. There wasn't like a final big show or a final big something. Now that we're at the 50th reunion, do you see yourself wanting uh, to do sort of one big bang to say, hey, thank you all, and and it's been fun. Um, I've thought about it. To be honest. Uh, there's no plan. At the moment, actually, at the moment, you know, Phil, I saw Phil two years ago, he's rehearsing about to do his first show on Friday for years. So I think this is his year, you know what I mean? It's time to actually come back and, and do good work. Um, our 50th anniversary is, we've got about a three-year window. You know what I mean? I, I would have put it more like 2019, because the first single was in that 2050 years in 2019. That's more my date. You've got a window, you can choose a date, you know what I mean? You just sort of move them around. Um... Yeah, you've got about a three-year window, so you're okay, you're okay, yeah. But there's no plan. Let's see, I'm just nice, uh, exciting having Phil back in action. Let's hope, hope it's good fun. Yeah, it, it is nice to see him back in action. Why do you think sort of the music has endured for so long? Uh, because, you know, a lot of rock bands and rock musicians come out, they have one hit, one album. Some don't even get to one hit, one album. And yet, 50 years of music and 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 fandom and what was it about the band that just struck a chord with the public i like that word fandom um yeah i think well obviously again it's a good song but also you know our career i never forget we spent an awful lot of time especially in north america on the road you know we took, we took our band to every most cities you know every few years so we had a rapport with the audience in most towns in most cities in america people from i don't know 40 probably or to sort of 70 now, I'll have a history of when they came to see us and I had a girlfriend, you know, we're part of their people's lives, which is nice in a way, and sort of part of their history. So I think in a way, maybe the touring was important too. Have we gotten back to that space where touring has become uh, sort of the important driving force behind music? Because we, we sort of, to me, I think we lost that in the 80s. We went to video and, and everything was about radio singles and now that we're not in that world anymore of, of MTV and of radio singles, has the live performance become uh, the ultimate Im- importance in, in selling new music? It's, I mean, to summarize it, we used to basically go on tour to sell the record. I'd say the record now sells the tour, but it's nice. It's bit, music got very, got very sort of homogenized, you know, TV shows, internet, you know, um, MP3s, iPods. It's all a bit from, from nowhere. Then suddenly you go and see a live show, and it's beautifully real. I think, and that's the way I think popular people. The memory of a live show beats years of playing a CD, not playing a song. You know, I think, I think they, it, it's, a, it's just so real. Yeah, it really is. Um, let me get back to Mike and the Mechanics, Let Me Fly. Uh, I've had a chance to hear the album many times. The, the, it is sort of, you know, this really well-put-together melodic rock with, with sort of soaring vocals. Um, Talk to me about the actual songwriting process. When you, when you come in and make a new album, do you look back at the early ones in the 80s and say, okay, we need to be that band again? Or do you say, let's just 
write whatever feels right at this moment? Anything, any reference point we have, there's a guy called Brian Rawlins, who's sort of a bit of my old mentor, but he's great ears and oversaw the project a little bit. Um, remember, the first of the two Mechanics albums, I used a lot, a lot of my sort of early demo drum loop quirky sounds, odd beats, odd characters. Um, it's part of what the Mechanics are, and I haven't done that recently, so I went back to my sort of early... I programmed sort of quirky drum stuff, you know what I mean? Odd sounds, odd chords. And went back to that a little bit. It was writing, I think. And kind of, we kept the early, we based this song around my sort of home demos. Because I record at home, and I love it, you know, I got a good, have a good guide vocal, and my guitar part, and I play bass pedals, and a guitar synth and a keyboard. So the, the, the demo sounds quite strong, but we, we didn't try and change the character. We kept the character of the demos and built the track around it. Going forward is, is, do you see Mike and the Mechanics ending at some point and you retiring, or is this sort of you're like BB King and you just keep going, and, or Chuck Berry and you just keep going well, until? No, good, good, I mean, good, good question, really. Half of us have done, but I don't know. I like doing stuff. Um, I don't want to be too hard. It was a little hard six years ago, sort of restarting the mechanics, coming in very cold, you know, I mean, around for 10 years. But it feels good now. Um, I didn't see why not for a bit, but I just sort of, I don't plan too much, you know. Really? Yeah, it's got to be nice to be at this point in your career where there's... Le- well, in fact, you tell me, is there less stress in your career in terms of making new music and making new albums and just get... Because I- I'm sure you don't have an AOR guy chasing you down saying, you got to do no, this. I never, I never had that ever, but uh, it, yeah, making an album is still stressful because the older you get, the harder it gets. And the reason is because when you're young, you kid yourself. That's a good song, you know. When you're my age, you know if something's not good enough. You can't pretend it is. And so what makes a, an idea of a song, the promise of a song, come through is that intangible thing I still wrestle with, you know. So it's still stressful, but I enjoy it. Is there any um, physical limitations as you get older? Because, you know, if you look at a soccer player or a baseball player, you know, they don't throw as far, they don't run as fast. As a guitarist, is there anything going on with the hands where it's slower? Uh, no, not really. Well, yeah, I mean, I've got some bit of arthritis, and my, my big tendon in my left hand, the carpus radius tendon, snapped about 10 years ago. I've got a three-inch gap, but the body, I'm in reasonably good shape. Yeah, I'm in reasonably good shape. I stay fit. I don't put on weight. No, um, you can't keep going. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something. Um, a few years ago, you released your, your memoir, Living Years. Talk to me about that process and, and going through and sort of picking out the stories that you wanted to tell. Uh, is that a fun process? Is, is it a revealing process? Is there any sort of self-revelations, uh, epiphanies? or no, Not that, but I mean, really, the reason for doing it, as you probably know, is I found my father's memoirs. And the book's Correct. really based about... It's a, I got a fascination, that, that huge social cultural revolution in the UK in the 60s. I mean, it was, it was incredible. It was a huge shift led by the UK, really, where young kids suddenly had their own, their own culture for the first time. You know, up until then, a young kid of 21, his dream was to become his father and do the same thing at my age, anything but. So it's a fascinating time. And so the books are based around that huge social change. And, and the, the band and my father and his life in the Royal Navy and everything is almost the backdrop to that. It was. Um, speaking of your, your father, when you decided to go into the, the music business and be a musician, uh, especially in sort of, you know, 60s England, which was very sort of, you know, stiff upper lip and everything, uh, was it well received or were there battles uh, with him over your career choice? Well, 
he had no idea what we were doing. I mean, nor did we, because in those days, there was no, there was no one before us, you know, no step precedent. We were first generation guys doing this pop music. He had no idea what I was doing, really, and couldn't see a career. But he, I think you see, he was great. You see your children obsessed about something, working in the back. You can't say no if they're working hard and trying everything they've got in their powers to do something well. You can't never say no to that, really. So he didn't. So in a way, I think he was very brave. I mean, now it's different. Parents see kids making money and they push kids. But in those days, it was like some sort of, you know, what, what, what am I doing, you know? He was very good that way. Yeah. What Was he sort of in the, uh, you know, you need to go, you need to be a banker and, and stop, put this guitar down? Well, he had the foreign office in mind. Um, but I think he realized the world was changing. I mean, he'd been through two world wars. He was born in 1906. He'd gone through two world wars. I think he realized that the world was changing. So his sort of old establishment sort of concept, preconceptions were changing. And I think, you know, being in the Royal Navy, they travel the world a lot. He'd seen so much. He was open to things, I think. He really was. And, and I see we have about five minutes left, so if I can just uh, go with uh, a couple more questions. Uh, the genesis of Genesis. You know, you, you look at that, that time... Elvis Presley songs, uh, the Beatles, everything was sort of three-minute pop or two-and-a-half minutes. Genesis comes out with these long, long songs, progressive sounds, everything's different. Uh, talk to me about sort of creating or helping create that, the, the progressive movement and that, that, that sound, because it was really sort of an anti-culture to what had been going on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's strange, it's strange, because in a way, you know, we, we were huge fans of the Beatles, and you know, it was amazing. Kink songs, small faces, the Who, you know, incredible music out there, which we loved. Kind of Motown, you know. And so we start, maybe we just had too many ideas. I think maybe there's four or five guys writing full of ideas. Maybe we had too many ideas to do a short song. So the long song concept seemed to sort of just, it wasn't bad, seemed to sort of fall into place, really. But also the, the way the instrumentation was put together, it wasn't just, you know, three chords, I love you, I love you, I love you, uh, yeah. let's get to the next one. There was certainly a, an experimentation, also a maturity, and taking it sort of, you know, finding out stuff that the guitar and the drums, you know, people weren't doing, couldn't do. Um, musically... I think we were, we, were, we were trying to probably, you know, we were young and intense and keen. You always want to prove how fabulous you are. You know, in those days you are, how great you are. But there were just so many ideas, I think, that it became this sort of... Um, Incredible compositional sort of setup, really. I think, um, but you know, it was just everything luck, chance, timing, and there were no rules, really. Yeah, there really wasn't, and and it, it, it sort of was a musical gamble, and obviously it paid off. Fans responded, and um, I'll finish on these two questions, uh, sort of similar in scope. Um, when Phil Collins decided that he didn't want to continue in the band, uh, how was that for you in terms of? You know, I'm losing a friend, I'm losing a business partner, I'm losing the lead singer of my band. Was it shocking, or was it like, well, you know, hey, people have to go do what they need to do in life? It was fine. I think Terry Banks summed it up well. He said, I was, to first, I was surprised he stayed this long, actually. <laughs> um, you know, we had a moment in time in Phil's circle where he went crazy. And that would have been the time for him to leave, but we carried on for the next sort of 15 years to have wonderful success. Um, no, absolutely understand. I mean, it's been a long time. I can't believe it, really. Yeah. Um, so, no, you know, I'm still friends. I saw him last... Uh, like two days ago, you said. Yeah, what day is today? I saw him on Sunday. Saturday, last Saturday. Um, yeah, no, it's... it's uh, oh, good friends. I mean, I think, goodness, maybe... 
I mean, the band is always good friends. Myself and Phil and Tony have a sort of special bond. I'm not sure what it is, but we've shared so much, really. Um, yep. But it's just unbelievable. If you put it in a room together, it's like day one, really. Was there, though, any any moment of bitterness where you just sort of went, you son of a gun, why are you doing this? No, I mean, no, I'm okay. genuinely there, because he'd been with us for so long, really. They would have been doing, you know. And talking to him, actually, after his book, he looked back, the 80s and 90s, God, I worked hard. He worked, I mean, I think, well, he worked even harder. There was about four or five albums, bands, solo albums, you know, tours. God, it was just like on fire, but crazy schedule-wise, you know. Which is like, there's actually art, you know, we loved it. It's art, fabulous time. We loved our choice. But when you look back, you think, God, we did burn it hard, you know. Yeah, I think everybody did. Between you guys going out with Mike and the Mechanics and him doing, you know, Susudio and all yeah. that stuff, it, it, it was it was crazy. I'm, I'm, sur- I'm actually surprised that you all sort of made it through intact. Um, well, exactly. So, so when, when something's out on top of it, you can't understand it. Yeah. And, and I'll ask you, and I'll finish with this, the last one, uh, sort of the same premise, but with uh, Peter Gabriel, when he left, uh, I guess back in 75 it was, uh, was that shocking or was that like, ah, and, and, and was the decision immediate to get Phil or did you sort of think, oh, okay, what do we do? Well, that was that was harder. I think we, that was harder because we were sort of we always thought the original full piece of us um, without Peter wouldn't any of us wouldn't work. So um, when Anthony left, that was a harder one because I think especially at the time too, Peter was so visible in the press, you know, the singer and his his on stage on stage performances. Um, and then we thought maybe we did think yeah maybe this is time to, to um, quit a day. Then we do what we normally do. We said well you know what let's go and write some songs and see. And the first few days, writing Trick of the Tail, but Phil sang. Um, and for some reason, Steve wasn't there. We just we just took off again, you know. You could see it was going to work. And, it, and, and it, so, and then yeah, Phil then became a singer. We couldn't find anyone better, but he always thought he would do the, do the drums. But he did, and hey, it worked out. Worked out very well. Uh, Mike, great pleasure to, to, to speak with you today. Uh, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. And hope to see you on the road. Okay. Bye-bye now. Okay. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Hey, everybody, this is Spike Ferrisons from Spike's Car Radio. We're out here in the porch of, uh, at the Malibu Kitchen at the Malibu Country Mart every weekend doing podcasts. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. We're going to have Jeremy Piven. We're going to have Chris Hardwick. See you soon on Spike's Car Radio. I think he's over-projecting for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I love to over-project for podcasts. Join me every week at podcast1.com and Apple Podcasts. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And welcome back to the show. If you recall in an earlier episode, I had marked the 37th anniversary of uh, that time that my mom uh, turned down Gene Simmons' invitation to uh, go for lunch or something like that. In fact, no, I was marking the 37th anniversary of my very, very first interview, which has happened to have been with Gene Simmons of KISS. And I had mentioned, it was June 9th, 1980, just in case... And I had mentioned that uh, I had the whole 20-some-minute tape, and if you want to hear my mom's uh, interview with Gene just before preceding mine, you know, write me on Twitter and on the Facebook and so on and so forth. And the overwhelming response is, yeah, we want to hear the, the entire tape. So 
Once again, I reached out to uh, Sean Franklin, who uh, does stuff for uh, Public Enemy and uh, Anthrax and so on and stuff. He does mastering. He took the tape and he's cleaned it all up. So I'm going to play the entire unedited or 22 minutes. Now, I, I, there's, a, there's a part where my mom switches it over to me, and you'll hear a little tape thing. I'm just going to leave it as is, because that's, that's the source tape. That is how I have it. So I'm just going to let it play as I have it, so you get the entire sort of memento that I've sort of been keeping in the vaults for, uh, for 37 years. And then on the uh, other side, um, I'm going to come back with an interview with songwriter Adam Mitchell. He has a new album called Back When We Were Cool, and of course, some of you might be saying, well, who is Adam Mitchell? Or you might have said, hey, I know that name, but where from? Well, he has written songs on many a Kiss album, including uh, Creatures of the Night, Crazy Nights, and uh, Hot in the Shade, for example. And he's also written with John Waite, Wendy Williams, Bonnie Tyler, Chicago, Paul Anka, and Murray has recorded his songs, Olivia Newton-John, and, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I do talk to him about some of the other bands, you know, Olivia Newton-John in particular. But then we do get very much kiss-heavy, what was it like writing this song and that song for this album and that album. And so I guess the second half of this show sort of is a kiss-heavy kind of thing. But without further ado, let's get started with this Gene interview. It is from June 9th, 1980. It is uh, my mom talking to a Gene first. We used it for Denmark's radio back in the day, and I think a CBC Kids show, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Uh, CBC being the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. And um, on the way down, and, I, and I've said this many times, and so you know the story, uh, she didn't really know much about KISS, so I wrote all the questions, and she sort of went in armed with my questions, and then she turned over the microphone, not twice fairly, but to uh, Mitch LaFon, and I got my seven minutes of, of fame and fortune. So, enjoy. Here it is, as is, as I have it, but remastered by Sean Franklin, who does stuff with, like I said, Anthrax and Public Enemy and a bunch of others. And then um, we'll take a short little pause, and I will just flip it right into Adam Mitchell talking about the process of songwriting, um, you know, how he does it, how, how the songs came about, and then how he came about writing off for the Crazy Nights album, how he came about writing for um, Hot in the Shade, Creatures of the Night, uh, working with Gene and Vinny stories and all that stuff. So uh, here you are. Without further ado, here is um, my mom and Gene Simmons. Gene, I wanted to start off by asking you, your new record is, is quite different from your old ones. What is it that has changed in the group to make this so different? Well, why do you think it's different? That's what I'm curious about. I have only heard it once yesterday. It seems more quiet, more mature. Um, well, it, I don't, it seems I don't know. As if you're more interested in 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 the words and in in the message than just in. Well, we had some things to say this time. I think mm -hmm. not that, not that we didn't have things to say all these other times, but I think we. Songs like Naked City really talk about the kind of city that we live in, and uh, we have different perspectives, different viewpoints, I think. But also, what you have to consider is that you can be kissed for 15 albums, and then every once in a while you do something different. And uh, I think people will like it. I think that uh, the only criteria we ever use when we sit down to do an album is to record the best songs that we have right then and there. And so the only require the only uh, you want me to hold this no yes fine sure 
And the only thing that we considered when we sat down was which were the best songs. That was it. We didn't think about the kind of songs they were, if they were fast or slow or loud. None of that was very important. It was just the best songs that we had. So what you hear is what we are like now. How long did it actually take you to cut this album? About two and a half months. Two and a half months of actually recording when most of the albums took about, uh, oh, three weeks to a month and a half. Now, there's this new style in music. Does that also mean that you're going to have a new style in your, in your concert presentation? I'm not so sure that it's a new style in music. I mean, I, th I know that that's the way you hear it. But uh, there's nothing new in the instruments that we're playing or the way we're playing them. The songs may be a little bit different. In other words, we're still playing guitars. Mm -hmm. Gene Simmons is not all of a sudden playing organ or something. Uh, but no, this, this is just, you know, some more new songs. You know, when we recorded Beth, which was a, a violin-laden kind of song, or when we did Hard Luck Woman, which had a lot of acoustic guitars or other songs, uh, they were different songs, but they were still Kiss songs. And that didn't affect the stage show, except that, uh, I hope we can take this show to Europe, but in the American show, crazy things happen. Ace's guitar flies out of his hands and another guitar appears in his hands and he shoots it out of the sky and I fly up 60 feet into the air at six feet a second and, and land on top of the light truss which is 60 feet overhead and throw up on people's heads and there's fire breathing and the whole drum riser goes up 30 feet into the air and turns around 300. Have you seen the show in America? Yeah, I've seen it in Montreal. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it's a pretty good show, I think. I think maybe it's the best show. It probably is the best show uh, around. Certainly, it's the best rock show I have ever seen. Do you ever f get a feeling that people come to see you more for the sake of the show than for the sake of the music? Sure. I think that, uh, and I think that that's good, because I think when you buy a Kiss record, you only get the music. So whoever thinks that people are buying our records just because we play well live is missing the point. When you buy a Kiss record, you don't get any flash pods. The record doesn't levitate above the, <laughs> above the machine. There's nothing extra that you get except maybe some presents that we give you, you know, that we pay for, like posters or special things, maybe a special designed uh, record sleeve or something special, but that we pay for. So you get nothing except the songs. So we take it for granted that people that buy the albums like the songs. When you see a band live, you should get 50% more than you get with an album. In other words, I don't just want to go see a band play their songs because I can stay home and just listen to the record. I hope that people come to see us live to see us more, of course. You can always hear the record at home. In fact, I would imagine that there are people, some people who never buy the records who have to see the show live because it's the best show around, of course. Do you think that that's the reason you're you're a number one? That you sort of you really give more show than anybody else? That you really give them something for their money? I think I think that may be true. I think uh, also the only people that can answer why we're so popular are the people that make us popular. You have to ask them why do you like Kiss? I can only tell you that it's my favorite band because it's <laughs> it's the one that's the most fun. Nobody ever takes themselves too seriously. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's amazing to be able to walk into a toy store and see all these amazing toys, pinball machines. And Did you see that machine? Oh, yes, 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 yes. It's amazing. I'm having the time of my life. Yes, I'm sure. I certainly have that impression that as a rock group, there are more sort of um, 
extra things growing up about your group than about any other group that I Anybody. can think of. In fact, yeah. as we're even talking now about having a Kiss World, which is a traveling amusement park that would oh, travel really? across what the country. What would that be like? Oh, you know, amazing rides, uh, just fireworks and big air balloons, 100-foot balloons that go up into the air and take people for rides and roller coasters and just anything that we can imagine that would involve the personalities of the band. And we're thinking of having an entranceway with these big 50-foot faces all forming together with the mouths open and you walk through the mouth, you know, into the amusement park. But this is all in the future. And then, of course, there are the movies. We're planning two, two movies. Mm -hmm. There's a German company that's working with us on doing a cartoon show for America. It's just beginning. Uh, a cartoon where you would be the main characters, but you would appear in them as cartoons. Right, superhero oh, okay. cartoons. And what would the other movie be? You said two movies. There's a science fiction movie with us as superheroes, you know, through space and through time and all the rest of that. And then there's a, a, a kind of a movie that would, follow, where, that would follow us through Europe, and we'd bring along cameras. It would be about two girls who follow us all across Europe, trying to get pictures of us without our makeup. And in the meantime, there's uh, intrigue and spies and all the rest of that. I see. You also just talked before we started the interview about um, some robots you're going to introduce in your show. Could you just tell me something about sure. that? Sure. There's so many things that uh, are being worked on right now. It's a little bit hard to say, well, we'll do this and we'll do that. And everybody that's, anybody that's ever seen all our shows knows that every show is different completely. The costume change and the songs change and, and of course, the show changes. Uh, but right now we're working on these puppets who are about uh, three and a half to four feet tall mm -hmm. that are completely uh, automized. In other words, we can control them from off stage in the same way that you send, uh, in the same way that you can control those automatic planes that go through the air, you know, oh, that yeah, you can, yeah. same kind of process. And these talk and walk and they can play drums and play guitars. And maybe we'll have these little people, little kiss puppets go up on stage, play one song. Mm -hmm and then get off the stage and then have the real guys, you know, four times as big come out. Fine, just, just hang on a second. Unfortunately, tape, I think it seems to... You know, it's funny, in Europe, everybody uses... very, very fast. Um, I just have to turn it down, I think. What does Europe, people use in Europe? How long is your European tour going to last? Well... You know, we always get new pieces of paper every other week, but right now we've got a European tour that lasts about six and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And then we come back to America for a week's rest, and then we go to Australia and Japan and New Zealand and Singapore, and I don't even know where else. And then we come back to America to do a Euro uh, an American tour, and then we do the next album in the spring. Not this spring, next spring. So there's be no new album until next spring at all? There may be a Peter Chris solo album before then. I suppose the obvious question is to ask you, why did Peter leave? There's nothing too complicated about that. Uh, Peter, you know, has gotten remarried. Okay. He's got uh, a beautiful wife who's the copper tone girl, you know, the suntan girl. So all over America, there are these 50-foot uh, posters of her, you know, kind of leaning sideways, uh, advertising suntan lotion. But he's very happy, and he just doesn't want to tour. He doesn't want to go out and tour anymore. He wants to stay home and make little Peter Chris's who, with little drum sets, you know. <laughs> and we have to respect that. We all grew mm -hmm. up, uh, we worked together for this one concept. Everybody created it, and we have to respect his wishes. And we had a choice. The choice was uh, to quit 
-hmm. you know, to break the band up because one member didn't want to tour or to continue the concept. And we all sat down and talked about it with Peter, and Peter agreed that we should go on. Now, Peter's going to remain a member in the partnership. Mm -hmm. Nobody was fired, nobody quit. He's going to remember, remain a member in the partnership, and uh, he's going to record solo albums, and I don't think he wants to tour. And we're going to get a new member with a new, new concept, new design. Has the new member been chosen? Yes. But you're not going to say? Not yet. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Um, you talked about this, that you give more to your audience, and what we were really wanted very much to find out was why is it that, that somehow you, more than any other group, has become not just a musical group, but almost an institution, a religion, a, a cult for millions and millions of people. Um, what is this sort of specific fantasy world that you think you have you built up, if it is a fantasy world? I think you can answer it very simply. I think you can answer it with one word, fun. What I mean by that is you can... Uh, the reason we put out toys and the reason we get involved with that is because it's fun. I like toys. I don't do it for you or for anybody else. I want a pinball machine. So if I see a lunchbox, I like lunchboxes. And I want my face on them. Uh, we try to make everything that we do fun, from the stage show to the albums. When you buy the album, we really spend a lot of time and money in trying to make them as interesting looking as possible. And anything that we do, we try to have a good time with. I think, uh, I mean, it's the reason Superman or Santa Claus or any one of these big heroes are popular. It's because they're fun, because they don't tell you how to wear your hair, who to vote for, what kind of religion you should have. A performer shouldn't tell you that. And uh, we never try to tell any, anybody what to do. Uh, but yet you have been banned in a few places for, um, oh, they say devil worshipping or oh, yeah. some other silly things like that. How do you feel about that? It's unfortunate, but I think these people are misguided. It's a shame that they can't spend their time and their energy and their money on something more important, like getting food to poor people. Or I mean, that's far more important. The amount of money that they spend on making sure that everybody thought that we were devil worshippers they could help some people out. So I feel sorry for them. It's, just, it's unfortunate. But I, there's no, it's nothing new. Beatle records were burned. Elvis was the devil, you know. That's okay. Do you feel, you, you don't feel at all that you're leading children astray or you don't think there's any any background to that kind of uh, accusation? I mean, I don't feel so either. To where? I mean, so leading I mean, them to They say, a... well, you know, lead them to devil worshipping or... Oh, and they say all this blood and gore and so on is going to have a very negative effect on them. I think if anybody's going to have a an objection about the ban, I think you can simply turn on the television and then tell me which is gorier. You never saw anybody in Kiss beat anybody up. And uh, we never tell you to do any one of those things. It's, nothing, it's not what we're about, but I think anything that we will do, we're going to do for for uh, shocking purposes. You know, we'll do, yeah. we'll do almost anything to make the show interesting. But, look, whenever anything gets popular, there are people who have nothing better to do with their time than to assault it. And it doesn't mean, even Christmas, you know, even with uh, Christmas time, you've got a, 
a person in American literature, in English literature, whose name is Ebenezer Scrooge. Mm-hmm. And all he does is he says how terrible it is that everybody's having such a good time. Yeah. But the truth is there's only one person having a bad time. So that's what our new album cover is about. There's always one idiot out there, you know, who doesn't can't figure out why all the people are having a good time, but he's rotten. Oh, they're terrible, you know. You feel by and large you have uh, been treated fairly by the press or... or oh, of not? course. No matter... Even the press that hates us, well, most press hate us, uh, realize that you can't avoid us, and so they always print pictures of us and spell our name right. So I don't care what anybody says about us as long as you print the pictures and spell our name right. That's fine. People will always decide what they like, no matter what anybody tells them. That's true. What do you think if... You, you say you're not trying to tell anybody anything in your songs, but do they have some kind of message anyway that you would like to get across, or is it just let's all have fun, or is there something more? There are no messages. What is the message in circus, when you go to see a circus? Mm -hmm. There are no messages. Hopefully it's entertaining, but that nobody's telling you to do anything. When somebody does a somersault, or when somebody breathes fire, there's no message. The only purpose is to entertain you. So, you know, the song titles that we've got are not leading. It doesn't say destroy the world. It doesn't say go do this or go do that. They're very simple kinds of songs that talk about what it's like to live in New York City, mm -hmm. uh, a girl who's very European, you know, in her... It's about a girl you hope to meet, I gather. We, we will meet them. <laughs> They're out there. Yes, I know they are. Okay, for the moment, um, to ask a question. What is it you would like to ask mm. you? Why do you have makeup? Oh my God, what a question. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should tell us Why do we wear makeup? Yeah. Hmm. Why do you wear sneakers? So you don't get your feet cut. Hmm. Well, he got out of that very nicely. I think I think the only reason we ever decided to wear makeup or costumes or anything else was to try to make Kiss a special kind of band. I didn't want to look like anybody else. I didn't want to wear. I mean, if I dressed like this and walked out on stage, it wouldn't be very. It wouldn't be very exciting. Also, the makeup is another way of uh, expressing your personality. You know, clowns do it, and actors do it, and. Uh, You know, a long time ago, when Indians went on, on, uh, on war, when they went into war, Rain right? Witch doctors would put on makeup, and dancers would put on makeup, and a lot of people still do it. They have masquerade parties and Halloween. It's just a way of, of uh, dressing up for a special event. You know, every show for us is special. Yeah, but like most things, say that uh, that they say that. Um, That it's, you know, so like people will follow them until they take off their makeup. What do you mean? I didn't understand that. Like they, in the magazine, they say that you'll follow, like the fans will follow you if you have the makeup until you take it off. That it's sort of an extra public relations that. Oh, it's I. Part of your fascination that nobody of will course. ever, you know. Oh, of course. In, in other words, you think that if we took the makeup off, people wouldn't follow us? It's possible. It's also possible that if Santa Claus stopped wearing his red outfit and uh, took the pillows away from his stomach and you found out that it was your father, you know, coming through the chimney, or it was your uncle or somebody, 
that uh, Santa Claus would stop being a magical kind of person. I think maybe you're right. I think maybe if Superman start, stopped wearing his costume and just dressed up like Clark Kent, maybe he wouldn't be Superman anymore. Maybe you're right. Are you a kind of modern-day clown? No, I don't think clown, because I'm not making fun of myself. No, but I meant in the, in the general context of entertaining, bringing happiness. Yeah, maybe modern-day heroes I like more, only because clowns make fun of themselves. We take, they don't take themselves seriously. We do. I mean, uh, Superman or somebody like that will never make fun of himself, even though he's dressed, dressed very strangely, you know, blue and red tights and a cape, a red cape. So, I mean, so that's very... You, it's not normal for a man to wear that. Now, that doesn't mean it's good or bad. But I don't think clowns is the word. Maybe heroes. Do you have anything else? Well, what do you think about the people who sell things without you knowing about it? What do you think about people who sell things without us knowing about it? I don't know. I think... I bet you do. I think it's, well, you know, if they... If they have a good time, I think it's, it's okay for them. I don't, and I'll tell you why I don't agree. If somebody can sell something and put our name on it, Let's say you bought a T-shirt and it said kiss on it, but we, n we never told these people that they had the right to do it. Now, let's say you take the shirt home, the T-shirt home, and it shrinks. Or let's say the kiss falls off and you want your money back. Now, you can't go back to these people because they don't exist. They disappear. All they care about is taking your money and disappearing. But if you buy something that says kiss on it that we authorize, we ultimately are responsible for it. So if you buy a truck and it doesn't work, you can take it back to the manufacturer and say, look, this doesn't work, and you can get your money back. And that's the most important reason for making sure that you authorize something. But the people who sell, like, these pictures and all this, what do you think? Some people in London sell pictures of you and all this? I think it's wrong. They know it's wrong. And if they... Uh, they yeah, they do it for the money. And if they become very big, you know, if they, be, if they do a lot of business, then our lawyers call them and they get sued. And that's life. Well, like, there's one um, thing called the Kiss Underground, and they said that, that you joined it. Yeah, that's true. Now, I see, that's a nice little thing. There are some guys from Kansas City someplace who uh, put out a little magazine all by themselves. Now, it's really not supposed to happen, except we don't see that they're money-hungry. They're not trying to... Like rob anybody, you know, and they're not charging a lot of money for it. It's just a hobby, and so we support it. You know, we send little articles, and we call them up on the phone and say hi. But uh, the people that, and they give their address, so you can write in and say, look, I didn't get my magazine. Would you send another one? And, they, and they'll send it to you. But the people that bootleg, that's a word that means uh, somebody who puts out something. Yeah, but, like, there's some bootlegs that have names. Like, uh, but I have a, says that's okay. Like, I have a name, like, the says bootlegs. Destroys Anna, destroys Anaheim and takes uh, takes on Tokyo. And takes on yeah, those are records that came out that were not authorized. Those records are not supposed to be out there because they're not good records. If you listen to those records, they're recorded live and they sound terrible. And that's why we said that they weren't allowed to do it. But they did it. Mm. And uh, they may have been taken to court. I don't know. Because, like, there's lots of people who sell them, like... Oh, I know. Oh kinds of people all over the place they sell them. Thousands. Like, there's a, mag a French magazine there. They, they say that, uh, that there's two different mag One says that when you were a teacher, you liked the students, and this one, they say that you quit because you hated, because you couldn't control them and you hated them. No, the reason I stopped being a teacher is because I found out that I didn't want to be a teacher. I thought, 
if I stood in front of everybody, everybody would listen to me and everybody would be looking at me. And that's the wrong reason to be a teacher. You should want to be a teacher because you want to convey knowledge. And I found out that I wanted to be a teacher only so that people can look at me and listen to what I was saying. And that's the wrong reason, you know. I mean, also at the end of the day, no matter how good my lesson was, nobody clapped. Nobody went, yay, that was a great lesson. And that's what, what I was looking for. Sixth grade. Uh -huh. well, of course, English, right? All of them, Everything. when you All teach the, sixth grade. The, hmm? um, what did Peter Lee, did he have a I already asked that, okay. <laughs> and I think Gene Simmons has, has to go in a minute or so. I know you would love to spend your whole life with him. I know that. Uh, if you had been very lucky, he might have been your is that, teacher. Is that true when you're in... When, when you begin that you had empty arms on the stage to make, like, uh... To make it bigger? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You had to fool people, you know, you had to make people believe that you were something special. We couldn't afford it. We didn't have any money to buy a lot of amplifiers. Yeah. Well, after, the, after the first record, you started having a little and little more. Yeah, but we didn't, not until the fourth record did anything really big happen. Because did, it cost so much to tour, you know. Did, like, when you, when you and Paul, like, when you started off, did you ever have... Anything like, uh, did you have a name of a group like, I don't know, like Cheap Trick before they came famous, before, when I had two members they called Fuse? Yeah, I know that, that's very good. And before that they were called Sick Man of Europe, did you know that? No. Yes. Thank um, you very much, Gene. <laughs> and there you have it folks, my mom, me, Gene Simmons, all talking on June 9th, 1980, about the Kiss Unmasked album. And so uh, while we're talking about Kiss in the 1980s, let me get right over to uh, singer-songwriter Adam Mitchell. He, of course, wrote the title track for the Creatures of the Night album, that being, of course, Creatures of the Night. Same thing with uh, Crazy Nights, he wrote with Paul Stanley, Crazy Crazy Nights. And then on uh, Hot in the Shade, he wrote Little Caesar, which, of course, is sung by... Uh, Eric Carr, and on the A World with Heroes Kiss Tribute, which you can find on iTunes, the band Little Caesar uh, pays tribute to Kiss by performing the song Little Caesar, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, fantastic, I must say. Anyway, so there you go. You had uh, at the front Mike Rutherford of Genesis, followed by a From the Vaults interview with Gene Simmons of Kiss, and now, let us conclude today's episode with singer-songwriter, the one, the only, Adam Mitchell. We are speaking with singer-songwriter Adam Mitchell. The new album is back when we were cool. Adam, a, a great pleasure to be speaking with you today. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. You too. Yeah, now, you know, folks might be... Um, more aware of your name with the writing credits because you, you've done a lot of stuff with with Kiss over the years. So uh, we'll get to that, but let's let's start off with this. Back when we were cool, um, tell me a little bit about the album, putting it together, and, and actually writing for yourself uh, compared to writing for others. Well, you know, in a way, I I mean, I started out as a singer songwriter, and you know, I had a record deal with Warner Brothers uh, back in the seventies, and um, Redhead in Trouble. Redhead in Trouble. Yeah, it turned out to be quite accurate, actually. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> but uh, no, um, but um, a lot of songs, I'd say at least at least half the songs on that record, even though the record itself was actually for various reasons at, at the time, uh, wasn't that successful. But uh, uh, at least half the songs on the record got cut. 
by like suddenly like major artists, you know, yeah. um, Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, um, big heavy, Olivia Newton-John and and uh, Nicolette Larson, who was a big star at the time, and Anne Murray, of course, who's Canadian, Canadian and mm-hmm. uh, Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings. And all of a sudden I was getting these cuts in not only in, in pop and rock, but in, in country. And so I quickly kind of got a reputation as a, as a good writer and, and particularly lyric writer. And um, so I've really I've always thought of myself as writing for me anyway. And the only time I don't think about that I'm not writing for me is if I'm specifically doing something else like writing for Kiss, which we'll talk about in a right. while or, or some other band, because then it's not about what I want. It's about, you know, how to help them achieve what they want. But I basically always thought of myself as a singer songwriter. And back when we were cool, I just had some songs that I was I'd written over the last three or four years that I was particularly keen on. And you know what? The bottom line is I just felt like doing it. And and uh, and uh, I just, you know, I missed uh, when I was living in Nashville and writing in Nashville. One of the great pleasures of living there was going in and and cutting demos with musicians. And, you know, and my stuff is really not country, even though I've had country covers and stuff. I mean, I'm really not a country writer. I'm really more, a, you know, a, an Americana uh pop alternative writer you know i'm just not really a what you call a genuine country writer even although i've written some country stuff but one of my great pleasures in going in and recording songs in nashville a lot of them a weren't country and these guys who play there the session players in nashville first of all they're desperate to play something that's not country you know that's not one six minor four five right. all day long and secondly they're such world-class musicians that a lot of these guys came from rock and pop to begin with. It just so happens that there are very few places that a guy can both stay at home, you know, sleep in his own bed at night and make a really good living playing except Nashville. The very few places you can do that. But these guys, and I knew from, from playing them uh, with them before uh, all the guys that I picked uh, to play in the record, these guys are, as you'll hear on the record, they're, they're superb players. I mean, they've they're played on, you know, some of the record is kind of jazzy. Some of it is definitely up-tempo pop. Uh, there is a little bit of maybe one song on there that's country. It's kind of bluesy. But these guys, these, these are like, I always describe it, it's like playing in the NBA. There's maybe only a, 300 guys in the world that are that good. And these five guys that I used in my record are the best of those 300 guys. Uh, they've all pretty much been on the, um, on the cover of their respective national magazine, like Brent Mason, who, uh, yep. you know, Brent's like Michael Jordan of guitar players. Like every guitar player in the world knows Brent Mason. He's been on the cover of guitar magazine and Greg Morrow has played in a million pop records, the drummer and Mike, Mike Brigandello has been on the cover of bass player magazine. These guys are fantastic players. I knew them all before, except Jason Webb, who Mike recommended, uh, who's an incredible keyboard player. I mean, he even played jazz. Mike said, if there's anything jazzy, Jason's the guy. Well, it turns out Jason was the guy for everything. So they were all fantastic. And I basically wanted to do the record because I had these songs that I was itching to record. I wanted to do another record anyway. And I really wanted to get in and play with these guys because uh, I can't tell you how much fun it is. Oh, I and, can imagine. Yeah, you know, it, it was sensational, sensational. And then uh, the, 
uh, I had Ruby Amanfu, my darling friend Ruby, who's has who's an incredible songwriter and artist in her own right. Ruby's one of the greatest singers I've ever heard. I mean, seriously, ever, and a phenomenal writer and a very good friend. So Ruby and another the number one background singer in Nashville, Russell Terrell, who again can sing anything. They sang backgrounds for me and it was just great. And we had a load of fun and everybody really went above and beyond because they loved the songs. I mean, Mike Brignadello told me, he said, man, he said, he said, I'll tell you, you know, we play on all these records all day long here in Nashville. He said, we never listen to anything. The minute we leave the studio, we just never listen to it. He said, I love this record. He said, I have a copy at home. I have a copy in the car and I listen to it first thing in the morning when I get up. So coming from those guys, that's about as good a compliment as you can get. And so, so, um, I wanted to do it because it was going to be fun to do. And I'm super pleased. Couldn't be more pleased with the way it turned out. And, and I got to say, I, lo- I love some of the uh, song titles like uh, number five there, Videos Suck. That's <laughs> a great title. <laughs> now, 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 correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not wrong, but do you almost also see this as a sort of not a demo tape, but do you wish that, that other artists will listen to this and say, hey, I want to have that song on the rocks on my album? Is there sort of yeah. a... Okay, so... Th- well, no, I don't look at it. It's not exactly... Right. I don't look at it like that's not the reason I did it. In fact, that wasn't even a particle of the reason why okay. I did this record. But I know from past experiences that artists do like to discover songs. An artist would rather hear a song on his own on a record that he's discovered than he would than he would like to hear it from a, from an A&R guy who's pitching it to him. So I know from previous experience that my songs often get cut by people hearing them on my records. And so I expect, I hope certainly that'll happen with this record. Like before I forget, for example, uh, if I had to guess, I'll guess that song's going to be cut by more than one other significant artist. So yeah. I didn't, do, I didn't do it for that reason, but I expect and hope that that may actually happen. And uh, and before I forget, which there are song clips at Adam Mitchell dot Adam Mitchell Music, sorry dot yeah. com. If people want to check it out. It, it it is a great song, and I do hear. I mean, I, I can sort of hear, obviously, country artists too, but I can also hear uh, pop artists and even sort oh, yeah. of a melodic rock artist. Oh yeah, uh, you know, I, it's it's got yeah, that, that potential. So, talk to me about that here, you know, because I, I see you very much like Russ Ballard in the sense that you made all these songs and you made these albums, and then of course Russ Ballard, well, it's 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 fairly like picked up a song, you know. Yeah. Redhead in Trouble comes out. It's on Warner Brothers. Uh, At the time is the hope I'm going to have a successful career. I'm going to be the next, you know. Yeah. Okay. And it Uh, doesn't happen, but yet the songs are picked up. Um, Was there some frustration that you're not the guy on the stage, but yet you can't be too frustrated because, hey. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I did expect and and everyone else you know linda ronstadt and all all kinds of people expected that i would have a successful career and i mean in fact i may very well have had a successful career but two things happened the record was not well produced at all i won't go into why or who but it was just i didn't end up with the record that i wanted and i think like when i'm you know i produce a lot of artists myself and the most important thing in, in an artist is the producers here to help the artist get the record that expresses the artist 
and the true nature of the artist. Right. And I don't think my, uh, Redhead and Trouble did that for me. I don't think the record was well produced. And also, the second thing that happened was right around about the time that that record came out, music had just suddenly changed. If the record had come out a couple of years before, like maybe a 77 or something like that, uh, it would still have been more in that singer songwriter, you know, uh, James Taylor, Randy Newman, you know, Billy Joel, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, even Bruce Springsteen to some degree, although because Bruce Springsteen really is a singer songwriter, even although he's, you know, that's been overshadowed by his fantastic performance and so on. But when by the time the record came out, almost to the month, two things happened. Videos came along. And music changed to all this new wave, eighth notes. We're a new generation. Suddenly it wasn't about great songs. It was about attitude. Yeah. You know, well, that was the, the, the punk movement, especially. The punk and, movement, and, right. and the new wave of British heavy metal back then. It was yeah, really, yeah. if I can say it, it was sort of flipping the finger at the entire establishment. It was. It was. It was because they couldn't. And I understand that because the generation that came along then, there was no way, be, you know, being young and so on and not, not being yet that experienced musically. There's no way they could, they could surpass what had been done in the 70s because, you know, with, with songs in the key of life, you know, Stevie Wonder and Steely Dan and so on. I mean, that's all time stuff that, that, you know, that's 500 years from now. People will be listening, I'm sure, to I Wish, you know, Stevie Wonder. So what they did was, they, as you said, they kind of turned it on its head and they said, well, we're going to make it all about attitude. So and that's fine. I have no problem with that. Uh, but so the timing was bad for that first record. But people did suddenly start cutting the songs. So that was very good for me in a way. The only thing I didn't like about it was I never had seen myself as a, quote, professional songwriter. I'd always seen myself as an artist. And suddenly I was being put into situations, you know, and expecting write, to write songs, um, you know, for whatever the latest pop thing was at the moment. And while to some degree I could do that successfully because I had enough skill and craft as a songwriter, I just never saw myself that way. Now, when I was in a co-writing situation, as I was with Kiss, that was entirely different because, you know, you're sitting in the room, you get to know the guys, and, and it becomes a much more fun thing. But me as, as a, quote, professional, you know, so-and-so's looking for a song, writing, I mean, I just, I did it, but it was really never my thing. And, and whereas doing this record, doing Back When We Were Cool, these songs are all me. And they're all songs that I wanted to write. And like you mentioned, Video Suck, they're all my opinions. Or the first song on the record, The Lie They Want to Hear. Those are all my opinions. So this record is totally me. And that's what I prefer to do. What for you makes a good song? Because now, you know, and I'm going to stay on Redhead in Trouble for a little bit. You said that it wasn't produced the way that you wanted it, and yet yeah. Olivia Newton-John grabs Dancing Round and Round, and other people grab it. So obviously they, they, they saw something, you know, you know they, they, they saw something through the forest. Yeah. Um, what is it for you that, that, that you think makes a good song and that makes it uh, applicable to all these different artists? Because you, you've, you've been with, you know, John Waite, Wendy Williams, Bonnie Tyler, Chicago... There are all these bands that are just completely different from each other. You cannot say that Chicago and Wendy O. Williams are in the same pile. <laughs> not last, not last time I looked. Not no. last time you looked. So, no. so what makes a good song, and what makes them so uh, vast that that all these different artists can look at them and say, "Yeah, I like what this guy's doing." Well, I th I think 
I think musically, obviously, they're completely different one to the other. And musically, it doesn't translate. You can't say, well, I did this for Chicago, so I'll do it for Wendy O. Williams. But what does translate is, and it's the hardest part, really, and what defines a good song is a great lyric. My my strong, strong belief, and it's one of the things, you know, when I teach songwriting, songs are ideas, Right. Songs are ideas that are expressed in words, which are sung by the singer to an appropriately supportive melody. They're not great songs, are not a melody with a few words thrown on top. Now, there are records sometimes which work as a record where you just like the music and who even knows what the words are anyway. There are records like that. But yeah. I mean, listen, you know, through the 1980s, I I listened to a lot of bands and, you know, a lot of the hair metal bands. And and I got to say, I don't want to say it's the attitude, but it's sort of the fun nature of the beat that got to me. And and people will say, oh, but he's saying this in the song. You go, I don't care. I didn't read those lyrics. Right, right, right. Exactly. But but here's so, so here's my point then to that. So if you're asking me what makes a good song, and none of those songs you're talking about were cut by other people. Nobody said, I like cherry pie, so we're going to do it in my band and have a big hit with it. Right. So how I, I kind of arbitrarily, if you like, define a great song is one that you could walk into a club where no one knows you, like in a you know, writer's night or something like that, right. or open, open mic night. Right. Walk into a club where nobody knows you and they've never heard the song before, and you could get up there and play that song and you'll get everybody. That's a great song. That's a great song. And another kind of criteria is you ever notice how like some of the really, really great songs, um, they're so compelling and the lyric is so compelling that you can do them on, you know, unplugged, like Enter Sandman or something. Yeah, well, that, that's the other thing that I was going to mention is that people always say that a good song is the one that can be stripped down, take away yes. all the sequencings yes. and all the electric drums and just put it on a, either a piano or an acoustic That's guitar right. and it's still going to resonate. And there are a lot of songs like that that you can just pull out all the muck and the production and you still get this incredible piece of music. And, um, you know, that's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I would say about the lyric, what it comes down to, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into writing a great lyric. But the one thing that all great lyrics do is tell some kind of truth, some kind of truth that people recognize. It either puts them in a situation that they recognize that they can identify with, if you like, or it shows them, it shines some kind of light on a situation and makes them look at it in a way that they've never quite looked at it before. And if it's if the lyric is coherent and can lead them, you know, clearly through and into that situation and make it a gratifying experience without confusing them, without having them sit there go, oh, what does that mean? Again, this is when it's stripped down just to its essence of one singer, one guitar. That's a great song. And those are the kind of songs that artists within uh at least within certain genres, you'll get more, you'll get several artists wanting to do it. Like I'll give you a perfect example. And again, we, we can talk about Kiss a little bit later. But, you know, Paul and I wrote Crazy Crazy Nights. Right. That, that's a great lyric. And the lyric suits 
you know, these big images, we wrote that as an arena type song and all the images in it are huge and, and, and appropriate to the arena and it places you in a certain, certain way. Much to my amazement, you know, we, and this it's an up-tempo arena song, right? Everybody knows it. It's a great but, song. And they're playing that, it on tour this year, so. And they're playing on tour this year, yeah. They're playing in London next week, in fact. Yep. Uh, my pu- English publisher's going. Um, but that song has been done in several slow versions in a way that I, neither Paul nor I envisioned it in a million years. And it sounds fantastic. In fact, I even like them better. Yeah. Like, uh, there's two uh, versions. There's one from the Swedish, uh, no, Nor- Norwegian yeah. guy. Um, Niels, um, oh shoot. Uh, uh, uh I'm going to say Niels Larsen, but I, I think it's Niels Larsen. Yeah. He was, yeah, uh, Niels Larsen, like yeah. a Norway, uh, Norway idol kind of guy. And then there's also a version of crazy nights, uh, that was in a Canadian Smirnoff commercial. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was in that. And there's another one by another girl, which I just heard the other day that slow. There's even one, <laughs> I swear I'm not making this up. There's even one by a group of Gregorian monks. Yes, I've heard that. I've actually heard that. Um, (laughs) So, but the reason that that all these people are attracted to it is they are attracted to the song. And that's why, you know, everything in music, everything in music is the multiplication of the power of the song. The singer, how cute the singer is, how great the band is, how much publicity the record gets. Everything is a multiplication of the power of the song. And if you don't have a song, you've got nothing. A hundred times nothing is still nothing. So that's why songs that are really good songs will get covered by other artists. Because they all, in fact, they, it speaks to the other artists in some way. And they want to sing it and bring whatever it brings out in that artist. They want to identify with that and and just somehow connect with it by singing it. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's start off with Olivia Newton-John real quick. The The album is called Totally Hot. She had just been in the mega blockbuster Grease, which right. back in 1978, I remember we I went out to see it five times because, you know, <laughs> that's true. I mean, you know... The, the, uh, okay. we, we, di- we didn't have 500 TV channels or on no, no, demand no, no, no. or Netflix. And so if you found a good movie or a movie that, that was fun. Yeah, exactly. You went to see it multiple times. But yeah. she comes off this movie. She's, you know, her career is riding high. And um, on Totally Hot, the album, she puts dancing round and round. What does that do for you in terms of your, your stock in the business and your career and of course, her interpretation and, and take on it is, is, I don't want to say vastly different, but certainly different than, mm-hmm. than your take yeah, on it. That's okay. Um, what was that like for you on, on the business end and then also on the personal and going, hey, that's not my song tech. I mean, that's not how I yeah, envisioned yeah, it. Yeah, I don't mind that. I mean, I don't mind when, some, when the artists um, have a different interpretation of the song. Uh, what I mind and what every songwriter minds is when it's bad. <laughs> when when you sit there and go, what were they thinking? <laughs> I mean, every every songwriter minds that. But on the business end, it was you know it was a big hit. I made a lot of money, and you know I'd had by the time that came out, I had already was getting a reputation as a songwriter in L.A. And you know, I, and a number of art, art artists had cut uh, some of my songs already. But the difference is that a big uh, hit will make 
is that all those people who said, yeah, that guy's really a great songwriter. All of a sudden, when you have the big hit, it kind of legitimizes their faith in you. And then they're a lot more comfortable talking about you and promoting you and so on and introducing you as a hit songwriter. So, for example, um, if I once I'd had that big hit, if a producer wanted me to write with another you know, a successful artist, he could always say, well, you know, Adam Mitchell, he had that dancing around and around. Oh, that's a great song. Dancing around and around, by the way, it is, is a great song. And yeah. it's got a, it's got a terrific lyric and that's why it's been cut so many times. But, but people, it wasn't just that it was a hit. Any producer seeking to introduce me to another artist and, and talk the artist into writing with me could point to that song because it showed all, showed me as a good writer. And so that's the difference. And it was successful. And there's a big difference between someone saying, yeah, it's a good song. And someone saying, yeah, it's a good song. And it was a big hit. All of a sudden, everybody wants to get on that train. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like in Hollywood, you know, people are taking a script around trying to get a movie made. Yeah. People are all saying, yeah, it's a great script. That's ah, great script. We're, you know, we're kind of busy right now. We're producing a lot of things. As soon as a star reads that movie and gets it attached all of a sudden, everybody's saying, oh, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, I always knew that was a great script. So that's kind of what it's like with a hit record. Um, Michael James Jackson, the producer, mm-hmm. produced Crazy, uh, sorry, Creatures of the Night. Mm-hmm. He introduced you to the band, from what he I did. understand. Yeah, he did, yeah. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he seems to have somewhat become reclusive because he did sort of Creatures of the Night, and then there doesn't seem to be much else that happened after that so i don't know what where he is or what happened but yeah well yeah well my michael is actually i was involved with michael in, in another business with graham nash uh called manuscript originals no he's just doing other things michael is reclusive by nature and as a lot of people in the arts are and so i learned I mean, Michael and I are still good friends, but, you know, I've learned if people are reclusive, then that's just the way they are. And there's no point trying to talk them out of it. I know, because he, he would be such a great interviewer. I, I have to tell yeah, you, because, yeah, because that I'm Creatures sure. of the Night album is just, but, but okay. So he introduces you uh, to the band. Is there any particular story of the introduction? Was it just like, hey, hey, Paul, here's, here's Adam, or was it no, some not, kind of machination? Yeah, no, not at all. Not at no. all. Uh, Michael... I had met Michael a few years before that. I met him in Canada, actually, in the office of a manager of another band that I was producing, Flood. And we had a couple of big hits with them. And anyway, he, they were on A&M, and he was working for A&M at the time, and he was up in Canada, and I met him. So, And then when I, uh, when I was doing Redhead in Trouble and we were recording at Sunset Sun, Michael, and I hadn't seen him for four or five years, uh, he happened to be in the very next room in Sunset Sound recording another band at the time, Pablo Cruz. And he came in and he heard all these songs that I was recording on Redhead and Trouble. And he thought, wow, this guy's a good writer. So fast forward a couple of years from that, he got, he was suddenly producing Kiss. They were looking for someone to write with. And Michael suggested me. No, it wasn't like, you know, I'd been sitting there writing heavy metal classics. He just introduced me to these guys and said, he's a good writer. So what they did was uh, they said, well, we'll try writing with him a couple of times and see what happens. So Gene came over to my house, first of all, and we wrote two songs, neither of which was remotely 
a Kiss song. Right. There were two ideas that Gene had. One was called, I mean, I was, they were almost like Steely Dan songs or something. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but, you know, Gene will go off in these flyers every once in a while. So uh, one was called Chrome Goes Into Motion. Don't ask me what it, <laughs> don't ask me what it means. Right. Gene will have the tape because he never throws anything away. He'll have a tape. But anyway, he and I wrote a couple of songs. And then as I subsequently found out, you know, he went back and Paul said, what was it like writing with this Adam Mitchell guy? And Gene said, oh, it was great. So then Paul came over to my house and we started to work. And again, again, let me just emphasize in both of these cases with Gene and then with Paul, I just assumed it would be like a one day thing. Right. Just never dreamed it would be, you know, all these years and all these records, not in a million years. Um. So anyway, Paul came over to my house and um, he and I sat down and started writing and we right away, we started writing Kiss songs. We wrote uh, two or three songs for the, we wrote um, Partners in Crime. We wrote a couple of songs for that Kiss Killers record. And somehow we just had good writing chemistry. And from then, and then Creatures was not too long after that. We started writing for the Creatures record. And, um, and you know, and it just kind of took off. We just, Paul and I just have good writing chemistry and writing chemistry is, you know, it's not something you can count on. There's a lot of people you just don't, you don't click with as a writer, but Paul and I managed, Paul and I did that. And that's why we wrote so many good songs. So, so let me ask you about some of these songs, because some of them have meant a lot to me in, 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 in my life. Now yeah. the killer's album back then of course was was really meant for the european market and yeah it was yeah, yeah. um i'm a legend tonight by the way uh is being re-released this june on a european kiss compilation oh is it really yes wow. called kiss world um it, wow. it, it is part of the european tour marketing strategy so that the you'll, you'll be getting another couple of checks i guess yeah. for that one <laughs> okay now uh, partners in crime and i'm a legend tonight great songs but but let me get into creatures of the night this is yeah. the first sort of album that is made for the North American market after The, the Elder, Elder. Yeah. Yeah. which we all know was, was a disaster commercially. I mean, whether you like yeah. the album or not, that's a whole different game. Was there any sense of uh, desperation or pressure into... Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. There was no pressure on me. Right. But they definitely... Uh, I'm sure Paul must have talked about this in interviews and of course. Uh, it's not like I'm telling secrets, but no, no, they were so frightened really by the, the, the disaster that the elder was that they were very much afraid that it might be over because, you know, it's easy to, to look at Kiss now as this 40 year legend, but when the elder came along, they'd only had what, two, three records out before that. And well, for all they... I'm trying to think. I mean, you look at, you know, 73. So the elder was uh, 81. We're, we're looking eight years into the career. I mean, that's... Was it that late? Was the elder 81? I thought it was maybe before that. But no, anyway, eight, yeah. yeah. 81. So yeah. eight years in, that's, that's, not a, that's not longevity really at, at that not point. Not really, really, really. And, and I think what frightened them uh, so much was they had been so successful, you know, right out of the box pretty much, Kiss, uh yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many big, big records that all of a sudden the elder was was so poor performing that they realized they couldn't count on just being Kiss. 
and having had that, that it could all, you realized, I think it could all come to a screeching halt very quickly if they did not get back to making the records that their fans liked. And all those huge records they had before The Elder, you know, those millions and millions and millions of records they could sell. You know, it's really, what have you done for me lately? And I think that was a bit of a shock to realize how quickly, because I don't know what The Elder sold, maybe half a million. I don't I don't know, but it didn't sell very many. I'm not and even I think, sure it's gold yet, quite frankly. No, no, it probably isn't. But um, I think that was really a sobering realization. And they realized, oh, my gosh, you know, we were kind of counting on, if you like, we've made it. But The Elder was really quite frightening. So, you know, and from my point of view, you know, thank thank goodness for The Elder. <laughs> because if it hadn't been for The Elder, I might not be writing with them. And my life would be totally different. That's right. And, and, and of course, they had the added pressure now that the lineup was also not the classic lineup. Here is that's Eric, right, yep. Eric Carr that's coming into his second album. Uh, you know, discounting Killers as being a, a true mm-hmm. album. Mm-hmm. Ace Fraley is, is, is gone or yep. simply not showing up. And now you've got a whole uh, cavalcade of guys coming in to play guitar. Did you play any guitar on Creatures of the Night, by the way? Yeah, I did. I played on I played on Creatures, actually. Uh, you know, the lake that goes... In the middle and the end, that was me. I played that in my Blue Charvel. Oh, that's great. Now... So let's look at the songs that you wrote, and, and we can either go through all of them or we can move on to Crazy Nights and Hot in the Shade, but yep. uh, one of the greatest Kiss songs ever that is so unheralded is Danger. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> Sorry for the language, but, but yeah. man, that song is is absolutely stunning. I I, I love that. that Probably the favorite song on that album and, and one of the top ten. It, it's such a great song. Um. Talk to me a little bit about putting that one together, because, you know, you look at the lyrical content, you see Saint and Sinner, keep them coming, rock and roll hell. There was definitely this imagery being put forward that we're tough, we're mean, we're... we're, we're. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about Danger, and, and, and by the way, uh, as a fan, thank you, because that song is so good. <laughs> well, so you're welcome. Good. Yeah. Uh, that one I actually remember for several reasons. Um Paul and I wrote that in in my little little studio I had set up at, at my house in uh, in Studio City, and um, I programmed the drum track on you know because it's super up tempo you know and I programmed it on my drum machine which of course had no problem with the tempo, and we did it and we did a really really good demo, and everybody liked the song right away. Gene liked it right away and. Uh, when we went in to do it on the record, it was very hard for Eric to play because I, I, he did a great job. I, he did a super job, but the drum part on that record is really hard to play yeah. because just because of the tempo alone. And it's, I mean, you think in the amount of energy that it takes to play that. And, um, but I've a number of people have said to me they love that song in particular. The the way that it started that usually when Paul and I get together, you know, we just we get in and we start talking and Paul usually he'll come in, he'll say, you know, I just got this kind of he'll take his feelings about something and then he'll put it into a phrase or a word, you know, I said just something like dangerous. I said, you know what, well, that's that's let's just start with that. 
And then we started putting together what ideas go with this and what does it feel like? What does it mean? You know, we just sit down and we start playing it. So, and then the song begins to evolve. And once we have the feel of it, then we start to refine the lyric and, and somehow uh, it just all came together. But that was a very hard song for Eric to play. Very hard. I'm, I, I'm, there were times when I thought, oh, man, I don't know if this is going to turn out as good as a demo, which happens sometimes, which happens. Do, do you, by the way, have versions of all these demos? No, I don't. Oh. I, I, I wish I did. Listen, if I had, ha- <laughs> I if I had <laughs> half the Kiss memorabilia that I've had over the years, yeah. you know, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> oh. I mean, it just, it just never occurred to me to keep the stuff. But, but Gene does, because as I said, Gene never throws anything away. He never throws away tapes. Well, smart thing. Have you ever, you know, I, I've spoken to Mitch Weissman, uh, who's written with them and, mm. and been in Beatlemania and stuff. And in fact, we're friends. Yeah, yeah I know Mitch. Yeah. And he's thrown around this idea over the last few years that he wants to do sort of a songwriter's version album of all the songs he's written with Kiss and other artists. And, and mm-hmm. put that. Have you ever thought of doing a sort of a songwriter's version of Adam Mitchell does Creatures of the Night in Danger? No, okay. no, no, really not. Because, I mean, it's, you know, it's just not, it's really important for any musician to be authentically you. And Kiss, that is authentically who they are. But it's not authentically who I am if I'm sitting down to write. Okay. music or play music it's just stylistically not who i am back when we were cool and all the songs on there are authentically and stylistically me but it would be well quite apart from that it would be silly for me to do it because you know i'm really even although i played on creatures and some of that stuff it's i'm i'm not a shredder you know right i'm or, a singer i'm a singer songwriter so so and i just i just come up with good licks every once in a while Great ones on this album. So let's look at the yeah. other ones. So, so keep me coming. Great song. Love that one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other big one is, of course, the uh, the title track, "Creatures of the Night." First, yeah. first and foremost, the drum sound or the drumming or the, the drum riff. Do we call it drum yeah. riffs? Yeah. Whatever. Well, yeah, the groove. The, the groove. groove. Yeah. Is so powerful, so bombastic, but. Um, talk to me about that song, because that's another song that here we are in 2017. They have been playing it over the last few years. It just lasts and lasts and lasts, and it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound like, oh, here we go again. And and it's turned out to be one. In fact, in a way, it's kind of bigger and more popular now, even than when it was when it first came out. Because, again, remember, coming out after The Elder, there was still a bit of a hangover. Oh, yeah. As far as the elder went, as far as reception for Kiss, I mean, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, well, it's over for them." So the so Creatures as an album did not get the attention it might have had there never been an elder, and it had just been Agreed. yet another another great Kiss album. So, uh, but Creatures of the Song, if you, it's one of my favorite openings. Just that good luck, good luck, you know, the whole drum oh, yeah, thing, yeah. The, the opening, and so on, and it just launches into it. And I have had on so many people uh, right up until recently always say, oh, man, that's one of my favorite records. And, and it turns out Creatures in the Night, the, the album, is, I think, one of the, I'd say, top three or four Kiss albums of, yeah. of, of all of them. Uh, it, man, it sounds great. The drum, Eric played great. I, I just loved Eric, man. He was a great drummer. His drums always sounded great. And, and he really fit 
that band. He really, really fit that band. Have you, by the way, seen the Canadian band Brighton Rock? Uh, they have a video of Creatures on the Night yeah. doing yeah, that very slow treatment. Isn't that incredible? That's right. I forgot. You know, I completely forgot about that. Like maybe three or four years ago, someone told me about that. And I saw it. Yeah, in fact, I, I emailed the guy. I complete, I forget his name. Jamie, I forget his name, but I emailed the guy and told him how much I liked it. It's it's such and they, it's so haunting. Yeah, uh, I remember the first time I heard it, I went, "Oh, what crap!" And then it kept playing in my head. Yep. And I went, yep. "You know what? This guy wins. He he, Brighton Rock. They did it right." And uh, yeah. Anyway, for anybody listening, go over to YouTube, uh, look up Brighton Rock Creatures of the Night. It is a slow, haunting version yep. that at first you might, if you're familiar with the Kiss version, you might go, "Oh," but on that second, third, fourth. You're gonna go. You know what? Yeah, this is this is something special. Now, since you were in the studio and you you did play on 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 creatures and uh, how much of a I don't want to say of a of a mess or but how much of a upheaval was there in the studio? Because there was a, just guys coming in and out. I mean, did Ace play? Did Vinny play? Um, did, uh, yeah, Steve, uh, Steve Ferrone. Well, I guess. For, then Ace didn't play on anything. Uh, at least yes, if he no. did. it. Sorry, Steve uh, I, Ferris, not Steve. Steve Ferris. Ferris did. Yeah, no, Steve was in it five minutes. Steve's a great guitar player, and he was in it five. He played that solo on, uh, on he creatures. played the solo on Creatures, and that was it. It Honestly, it wasn't that much of an upheaval. I wasn't there for all of the sessions, but I was there, I'd say, for, you know, I'm just guessing two-thirds of them. Uh, certainly for all the songs that I co-written with Paul. Um, no, it wasn't Ace. I never saw Ace. I never even met Ace until... Oh, at least six or seven years after that, when I was over at Gene's uh, one day and he happened to drop by for something. But um, no, it wasn't. I know it it must look like that from a distance, but it really wasn't. I think by the time they got into recording, you know, and all the songs had been chosen, I think they had a much they were much more comfortable with the fact that they were back on the right track. They liked the songs they had. They liked the way the record was going. They and, and Michael were a good mix. And with Kiss, there's not much drama in the studio. There really isn't. Right. Not not that I've ever seen. They're you know they're all about business and getting it right. And um, yeah, so it wasn't too bad. I mean, I'll tell you something funny about the the riff that I played. Um, I had again when Paul and I had written the song and recorded the demo in my studio, I just came up with the riff and, and everybody liked it. thought that was great. And Gene said to me when we went over to his house and played him a demo, he said, Oh, I didn't know you could play like that. I, I didn't know I could play like that either. I just <laughs> came up with this good riff. But when we got to the studio to record it, I thought there's one, like at the beginning of that riff, there's a very difficult little thing to play. This is the very first part. It's the shuffle that goes da 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 like that. That it's a swing feel, just those notes, and it's very difficult to get right. So they thought it was fine, but I said, no, 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 you got to get, you got to get a real, what I would call a real lead guitar player in, in here to do this. So I don't know if Steve Ferris tried it, but I remember they even got, you know, one of the greatest guitar players of all time, Robin Ford, yep. to come in and try it. For just one of those crazy reasons, maybe it was because my riff, I was the only one who could actually play it right. So kind of over my objections, 
that's when it, why I ended up being on the record. Hey, it's a great record. And by the way, you know, you're right about the context in the sense, because people always ask me, what are my, my favorite Kiss albums? And I always say uh, the first one, Creatures of the Night and Revenge. And Yeah, Revenge is a good record. It's a great record. Yeah. and But yeah. I also look at it contextually just in the sense that, you know, Kiss had Dynasty, which I really liked, and Unmasked yeah. was a little bit watered down in terms of, of you know, yeah. pop sound. And then The Elder, I, I you know... It, to me, it was a complete disaster. I remember my dad yeah. bought it for me, and I put it on, and I just remember thinking, "Yeah, what, what am I listening to? I mean, what yeah. is this? And then Creatures of the Night, and it's like, oh, hallelujah, we're saved. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's true. And, and, and you know what? I, I think contextually also, I think that's what happens with Revenge, because, you know, you hear what Aerosmith is doing and Motley Crue and all these bands that I like were doing all these big, bombastic records, and you hear you know, hot in the shade, and you go, oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Revenge comes out, and you go, oh, hallelujah, yeah. I'm saved again. Yeah. So, but all right, so uh, I, I, let, me, let me finish the, uh, the, the, key, the, the Kiss Geek moment here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. You're not invited, or you're not part of the Lick It Up sessions. You're not part of the Animalize sections. Is there any particular reason, by the way, was it just they were going in a different direction? You weren't available because you were working with somebody else? It just didn't... Was there any particular... No, I didn't. You know, I don't know, and I wasn't... I, I can't remember if Paul asked me. I know at one point I was doing... Like, I was working on a script or something. But... Um, no, artists, you know, artists like to, it's like, you know, sports teams, I guess, you know, they'll try something else. People just want to try a new combination sometimes. And it wasn't because they were unhappy with what I'd done or anything like that. Um, no, I, I ne it never even occurred to me to ask them. And I was, you know, I was so busy anyway, it wasn't like it really, I'm sitting there at right. home thinking, oh gosh, why I'm on that record. And besides which, you know, in this business, you just, or just in business in general, or life in general for that matter, it's just not good to be too thin-skinned. Because if you're sitting there thinking, oh, this, if you're taking everything personally, it's never a good idea. Yeah, it's never going to end. And, and also, let's be fair to Vinnie Vincent. He's a great songwriter, and he yeah. was in the band for Lick It yeah. Up. And, yes. you know, he wrote some yeah. great stuff. Some Absolutely. Songs. Lick It Up's, Rick, Lick it up's a great song and a killer guitar riff. Well, as I've said, you know, for all the Vinny's craziness and everything else and the whole, you know, my whole aspect, part of the Vinny story. Right. I've always said Vinny was a phenomenal musical talent. Yeah. He really was. I've heard Vinny play things um jazz things uh, i heard him play a version of white christmas of all things it was with Vin benny was really a talented musical guy that it was never music was never the issue yeah and and, and and at some point we could get into the issues but for now we'll just yeah. stay to the no, no, we'll, no. we'll stick to yeah. the positive um yeah so we, we we mentioned crazy crazy nights the song before of course on the crazy nights album uh absolutely great pop song what i've always found uh, particular about that song is that in North America, it had a modicum of success. People are like, oh, yeah, I like that song. But in Europe, particularly the Huge. UK, yeah. massive hit. I mean, it's still, honestly, it's still a massive hit. Yes, and also going to be part of the new Kiss compilation coming out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, they play it. Uh, um, Patsy and I were in London uh, yeah. last uh, a year ago. Right now, we're, we went to Africa, and we stopped off in London for a week, and I was talking to one of my sub-publishers there, and in fact, I just talked to him again the other day, 
and he hears crazy nights on the radio all the time at some whatever it is 25 30 years after the fact no 30 year it was 87 yeah. right yeah 87. 87. yeah so exactly 30 years no it's still a massive hit and as you said uh it it was uh, in that uh, commercial it was a big hit they almost the sub publisher told me they almost got it in another major major commercial uh, or it was i forget what it was it was mcdonald's or something like that over there no it's worldwide it was a huge hit but again kiss really never got a lot of radio play here in the u.s the way they did everywhere else in the world with the exception of beth and then what was I, was, that I was made for loving you. Also. I was made for loving. It was good back in the seventies, but then what in the eighties, that one ballad Paul wrote with, my, with Michael Bolton forever. You know, forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a couple of funny stories about that, but well, uh, uh, I'll be happy to hear them. I'll... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, for another time maybe, but, but you know, so they never gotten a lot of radio play here commensurate with how huge a band they are, but everywhere else in the world. Oh my gosh. I but, mean, it's but, just, I, I can understand that in 1987 that the business uh, made it that, you know, it got a push in England. Mm. Stuff and, but here we are 30 years later, and there still seems to be that dichotomy where in North America they've tried to play it a couple of times, and I've been at shows, and it seems to just sort of go over like a lead balloon. And then you watch videos from the U.K., and you would think that the hand of God kind of came down and touched them on the stage. I mean, people just go yeah, completely. Yeah. Well, I think part of that, well, I'm, I must say, I mean, I've been to the last Kiss show. I was probably, it was four or five years ago. I mean, I never noticed that it didn't go over well here. I mean, it always seems to go over well. But the thing is, in the UK, it's a song that people are still really familiar with because they hear it all the time. Right. And it was a much bigger hit in the UK to begin with. And in fact, not only was that a huge hit when it came out, then at the end of the year, every year in the UK, they put out a compilation record. Uh, that's what I call music that has like the 10 biggest hits of the year on it. Yep. It's kind of like a, a Christmas special. So it was on that the year it came out that sold another two or three million. And uh, it, it's just become part of the musical um, landscape or whatever landscape yeah. of, of of England in particular, but in Europe in general. And you know, I, I mean, I've been able to you know travel all around the world. I, I've never been anywhere that at some point you won't see someone walking down the street with a Kiss T-shirt on. That's I true. mean, it's just the, the massive. It's, Let it's me incredible. ask you about about the the album though, and and where because how important is who's in the band in terms of writing the song? Because, you know, you write for Creatures of the Night and you've got all these different people and you've got... And now you've got Bruce Kulik that comes in. Mm-hmm. Does 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 any... And, and, of course, all the other bands, whether it's Olivia Newton-John, do you take into account any of, like, ah, I'm going to have to write a song that, 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 you know, Bruce Kulik can play. I'm going to have to write a song that whatever, Olivia Newton-John's guitar player. Mm-hmm. Is that any part of the of the recipe or is it just like, no, I'm no. just going to write... Okay. No, not at all. First of all, Bruce can play anything in the, in the case of Bruce. Bruce Absolutely. is, you know, monster, monster, monster guitar player. He, sure. I mean, he, Bruce is fabulous. Good. Beyond, far beyond just, you know, what you hear him doing Kiss. True. Uh, by the way, I've, I don't know if anyone's going to see Grand Funk. I was never, like, really into Grand Funk, but I heard them a couple of years ago, and they were getting, they're really a good band. And Bruce plays fabulous stuff in there. But no, I, you never take that into consideration because, you know, by the time you get to this level, you know, where you're talking about anybody who's a big, big star, they're going to have the best players who can play anything anyway. So, no, I never 
uh, sometimes I'll take it into consideration as far as what I think the singer can sing, because singers have certain ranges at which they're most effective. And that's not necessarily how high or how low they can sing, but what their effective range is, <clears throat> excuse me, where they, right. where it really works. So occasionally you'll take that into consideration. But other than that, no, you just, it's all about the style. Does this song suit what this artist is going to do? You know, it, it, which, you know, so, I mean, if I'm writing for Chicago, we wrote a Chicago song, I'm writing with Kiss, it's a Kiss song, you know. So, but beyond that, no. No. And speaking of that, I, I actually had Todd Rundgren on the phone before you today, uh, speaking of Grand Funk. Oh, yeah. He, he did, we're an American band, he produced that, of course. That's right, yeah. Um, I'll Fight Hell to Hold You, uh, one of my guilty pleasures. I, I yeah. you know, listen, I like... <laughs> yeah. You know, I like I Fight Hell to Holy. What's the other one? A Reason to Live and a Thief, you know, Turn on the Night. But um, mm. you wrote that one with Bruce and um, Paul, I guess. Mm, I guess so, yeah. I don't have much of a memory about that one. Um, now, did you also play on the Crazy Nights album? Because the, the, as a Kiss fan, there's like, no, no, Adam plays on I'll Fight Tell to Hold You. He plays with Bruce. It's it's his guitar. And then there's there's some that say, no, no, no. That's just uh, you know, I rumor. don't, th I, I'm not 100% certain, uh, but I don't think I did. I don't think I did. Uh, you know, Bruce may have, well, I was going to say Bruce may have borrowed my guitar, but no, it's unlikely. Bruce has got every good guitar he needs. <laughs> um, I don't think I did. I can't say definitely because, again, you know, when you're in, when you've spent thousands of hours in the studio, it's hard to remember sometimes who did what. But I don't think so. That's yeah, another great one. And then we'll uh, we'll just move over to uh, to Hot in the Shade real quick. Um, the song Little Caesar, which in uh, 2013 was reprised by the band Little Caesar, which I thought was great. No, I didn't know that. Oh, I'll have to uh, to send you that version because Little Caesar, the band, you know, and, and you might know Little Caesar from the early mm. 90s and so they, they do Little Caesar. And it, no. <laughs> it's great. I, I, I didn't know that. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely fantastic. Um, now, so you said that it doesn't really matter who's going to be playing the stuff, but do you write for the voice? Because this one is now, of course, Eric Carr singing. Does that come into consideration at all? Yeah, but Eric was Eric was one. I mean, Little Caesar, if I remember correctly, was written by Bruce and Eric and I, right? And well, so, well, uh, according it, according to to the facts, I haven't. Well, the facts. According to me, it says Eric Carr, Gene Simmons, and Adam Mitchell. Okay. Oh no, sorry, you're right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Eric. It was always designed. You know, they wanted to give it, because Eric, as you know, was enormously popular with the fans, and absolutely. and and rightly so. Yeah. Rightly so. Absolutely. And uh, so they wanted to give Eric a song to sing. It was kind of his Ringo moment, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Well, but at the same time, yeah, but he was always good. did that. You know, Beth, yeah. was, I mean, they, they've always wanted yeah. to have this four guys singing yeah. thing, right? Yeah, but, you know, it's, but, you know, Gene and Paul are going to sing, you know, almost all the songs. So that was the purpose of that song. So Eric was right there in the room. So what he could sing and where the song went you know, we didn't have to design anything special because as we were writing it, he could either sing it or not. And uh, and as I remember, Little Caesar was his idea. That title was his idea. So, no, that wasn't an issue. I mean, as I say, sometimes it depends who it is. Like, and, you know, Paul can sing anything. Paul sings higher 
than any human being I've ever heard, higher and louder than anybody I've ever heard. So that's never a consideration with him. And if you're writing, let's say, for Ann Wilson, who also has a phenomenal range, you know, you wouldn't have to take it into consideration. But some other singers you might. Okay, so, uh, and then um, there are some other songs that have uh, eventually appeared on this Eric Carr Unfinished Business CD, uh, Just Can't Wait, uh, Dial L for Love, and Eyes oh, of Love. Right, 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 right. The, yeah. the, those, uh, I guess, were intended for Hot in the Shade or, or some other Kiss albums and never made it. Are yeah. there a, a plethora of unused Adam Mitchell songs that are sitting somewhere in a Kiss vault? Well, uh, first of all, I wouldn't call them Adam Mitchell songs because I, you well, know, I do want to emphasize that I did co-write these with right. with anybody. But are there a number? Yeah, Paul and I wrote a song called Nightmare, okay. which we used 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 to joke and call it Nachmar, which which is German for nightmare. Right. Uh, yeah, there's songs. I mean, when you're putting together a record, and this is true for all records, you're going to write a whole bunch of songs. That like Gene and I wrote songs. Uh, Gene and I wrote songs for other records. You'll write more than the 10 songs that just end up on the record. And the whole thing is you write as many good songs as you can. And then uh, Gene and Paul will get together and decide which ones they thought were going to make up the best record for them at that moment. So how many are out there? Honestly, I wouldn't know. I mean, there's undoubtedly some. But I, I tend to, you know, once the song's done and over with and you move on to another project, um you tend to forget about, you know, a lot of the songs. I mean, I'll forget about, so I was in a restaurant one night with a friend of mine and a song came on the music. We're in this little pizza place. And I said, I said, you know, it sounded kind of familiar. And I said, you know, I think a friend of mine wrote that song. My friend Warren Pash wrote that song. And then I realized that, wait a second, I wrote that song. (laughs) I swear. Yeah, so if some, you know, Swedish pop band had done this song I'd written, which I had no idea had been recorded, and I'd just completely forgotten about it. So, um, so, yeah, there's probably some songs around, but uh, I'd be hard-pressed to tell you what they are. Well, we have Nightmare, so we got, we've got one. Yeah, um, the Nightmare's one. Uh, on AdamMitchellMusic.com, of course, there's a, there's a section about uh, write like a pro, and there's some, um, what do you want to call them, uh, Lessons that I guess yeah audio lessons yeah. audio yeah. lessons. Um, can people get in contact with you and 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 learn the craft? Can they hire you to help write yeah, a song? It's, okay. it's a subscription site. I mean, it's very inexpensive. I just want to do. I wanted to pass on what I figured out about writing songs and what yeah. seems to work for me. And in fact, when you were talking about the different all the different artists I've written with and stylistically, uh, the, the different artists who've done my songs and also this on back when we were cool which if i can just digress back to that moment yes, of course I'm, I, I, I really like to get people people really if you're especially if you're interested in songwriting please um download it or listen it's on spotify and pandora and google play and amazon and everywhere itunes everywhere but there's such a different you know the songs cover a lot of musical territory and but all of those songs, as different as they are from the up-tempo pop stuff to the jazzier stuff, all of those songs I wrote using the same five principles that I use when I write. And these are five basic things that I figured out all great songs, all great songs have 
And I mean all from, it could be the hymn Amazing Grace, it could be Enter Sandman, it could be Detroit Rock City. All five great songs have these five elements. And if one of them's missing, the song won't work. And so I decided to put these audio lessons on my website. It's just, you have to subscribe. It's like nine, $9.99 a month. It's not expensive at all for a year. And you can really, really improve your songwriting because I'm going to tell you what I figured out makes great songs work and what, if you don't have them, your song won't work. So anyone who wants to do that can subscribe through the website. Just go to adammitchellmusic.com to the right, like a pro section. And, uh, and there also, there's an email on there, uh, email contact where you can, you can reach me there. Are there some, and I'll finish with this, and of course, uh, we'll, we'll once again plug back when we were cool, but are, are there some songs that you've heard and you just go, there's no, how is this working? Everything is wrong about this song. I mean, are, 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 are there some songs that just, because of vibe or, or beat or, or the vocalist just... Well, sure. Okay. That, but, but, with, but, you, but again, when you, by definition, any song that I heard that I would think that about, let's say, who let the dogs out? Right. Okay. Oh my. It's, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a successful record, but it's not a great song. So any gotcha. song like that, that I might've heard by definition, I would be hearing it as a record, something that was out on the air and was being played because it just had that magic chemistry. It, it, you liked the singer's voice. It had a great guitar riff. But it's not the song necessarily that might make a great record. But most great, most great records, actually, especially now, especially these days, the, the level of pop music, uh, pop songwriting is very, very high right now. But what makes a great record work is not necessarily a great song. It is usually a great song. But again, if you strip all of that away, imagine a guy sitting with one guitar in the club going, who let the dogs out? Who <laughs> with let the dogs with, out? With a piano. Ding, ding, with ding, a, ding, you know, ding, ding. it's right. So with a piano. So, I mean, my, my concern, I'm a singer songwriter and what I know about music in general is all great music, even rap is built on great songs. I mean, if you listen to like Lil Wayne or something, I don't relate to that lifestyle, but his stuff is brilliant. It's very clever and it's, you know, and it's lyric oriented and so on. So I'm concerned about great songs because what I've found over the years is great songs is what, that's what moves everyone. A great song is what moves everyone. And so I'm just trying to, you know, whether through teaching or my new record or whatever, I just like, I'm attracted to great songs. And I agree with that, by the way, because I have always said a great song is a great song is a great song. And people say, well, you know, Mitch, you're a Kiss fan, you're this... How how come you like you know Rio by Duran Duran or why do you like that one Madonna song? Or, it's because it's, it's a great song and and sometimes yeah, that song. it just surpasses genre, it just surpasses. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that's the way it is. Anyway, um, back when we were cool is uh, out now, and uh, AdamMitchellMusic.com is where folks can find out everything about you. Um, absolute. Uh, pleasure today, and uh, we, we've done an hour, which is uh, <laughs> which is yeah. unbelievable. But yeah, thanks, uh, Mitch. Thank you for everything, and and um, yeah, I'm I'm very much encouraging people to go check out back when we were cool and sign up for the lessons because uh, when it comes to successful songwriting, 
you know, when the resume reads, you know, Merle Haggard and, and Kiss and Olivia Newton-John and so, um, listen, <laughs> that just yeah. be, that speaks for itself, right? So. Great. Well, thanks, Mitch. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Great pleasure. And uh, if uh, you can ever get Michael James uh, Jackson on the phone. Yeah, I tried, believe me. <laughs> I know. It is undoable, but. Uh, yeah, it is. One, one, it can, is. one can hope. Yeah. Thank you. Always a great pleasure. Okay, great. Thanks, Mitch. Bye-bye. Bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.